Hey y'all, this is Eve. Um, before we get into the episode, I want to provide a disclaimer at the very top here that we get into some heavier topics on this one. In particular, I go into detail about the betrayal of self-harm in Persona 3 Portable and my own experiences with self-harm and surviving an abusive relationship. Um, if you need to skip this discussion because it could be triggering for you, it happens between 2.12.44 and 2.23.20. Um, I then continue on with the discussion of the Igis relationship in the game and my disappointment of its handling of what could be an interesting portrayal of transhumanist sexuality and kink. So if listening to me try to explain why I'm into biting and blood play and how Persona 3 Portable gestures at similar kinks but without any actual understanding around consent or the erotics of negotiating pain with a partner, um, you can just skip from 223.20 to 242.46. Um, we also briefly hit on or mentioned some other things like reparative justice around abuse and my experiences as an ancillary target of Gamergate. So kind of in general, just know that this is going to be a bit of a heavier episode. Um, please take care of yourself if you need to. Much love to everyone listening. Um, I do think this is a good episode, but... Yeah, I just, I want to make sure that people are as safe as they are listening. So, here we go. Welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast. I'm your co-host, Neve, and I'm joined by my co-host, Connor. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the question bucket. Yeah, and this is this feels like a slightly weird one for me because we've recorded episodes for two other anime series at this point. Um, there were shorter ones, but also because there's going to be question buckets in the middle, but this is our first question bucket that we're recording. It's like... People are just now going to start listening to Cromartie High School. Like, if you go into this feed, if you all look, you'll see the intro to Cromartie High School. And they're not going to hear, like, the end of the MS team for months. And it's weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. This so, is, like, uh, the, the first big time of us talking to you all where it's actually going to be a fairly short turnaround. Um, and I feel like we're better podcasters at this point. 
then I, I really not, hope so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really proud of the stuff that we put into Ghost in the Shell standalone complex and like the conversations we had, and I think those are really good episodes. But I also just think we have gotten better at talking into mics. I know that when I edit podcasts now, it goes a lot smoother than the Ghost in the Shell podcast did. Um, and I think that's just us getting more comfortable with this. I mean, we have like what, you know, that was like 10 hours for Ghost in the Shell. And we've probably done at least another 10. So we've got some experience under our belts now. Yeah, we're rapidly um, working our way towards 10,000 hours. Is that what it is? 10,000 hours to be like an expert? Yeah. Or whatever um, that like made up thing is. Yeah, um, I'm pretty I'd, sure it is very made up, but I definitely think so. Comparing to like when we first started podcasting, which is like our you know our the, unsuccessful, the, the completely lost episodes. Yes, the lot. Yeah, that's a great way of like hyping them up and making them seem cool. The lost episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just like tell everyone why they're lost, though. So we won't let the mystery linger. The episodes are lost because I forgot to hit the record button <laughs> before we started so yeah, yeah from like that point to today i i feel like we are making some progress yeah so anyway this is i mean this is probably going to be a little bit more of like a loosey-goosey freeform episode uh we are going to be wrapping up our conversation about ghost in the shell standalone complex season one we will eventually get the second gig and uh answer a few questions from the question bucket so you know, as of time of recording, two people wrote in. Thank you very much. Um, we will answer those questions as we go. So this is also just a chance for us to kind of like look back a little bit on our discussion and be like, what do we want to pull out or try to put a final pin in or something like that, as well as just a chance for us to talk about things that aren't specifically anime. So I, I think I'm going to have us try and do this for all the question buckets but who knows if we like get super popular and we're getting tons of questions all the time maybe this will fall by the wayside but i i do like the idea of having a little opportunity for us to talk about something that's not at least directly anime um the thing that i brought was persona 3 portable which is like really really close to anime (laughs) but it's the kind of thing that we would never do on this show. We're not going to play through a like 100 hour JRPG and talk about it on this show. And so it's one that I feel a little bit more comfortable saying, like, let me let me talk about this and wrap it up. I'll, I'll also talk a little bit more about why I'm talking about it right now when we get to that. But um, yeah, what are, what are you bringing? I don't know what you're bringing today, Connor. Yeah. So I know I've kept you in the dark, which thanks for being a good sport about that. I think... I don't know how much we've talked about music or like reference music so far, but that is a big part of like, I think that's something we share. We both have a lot of artists that we, that we like mutually uh, and that we like talking about and music. It's a big, it's very important to me um, just personally. Uh, So yeah, finally we're at the question bucket. I have a chance to, Talk about the weird stuff I get into uh, and the weird musical, like, interests I have. So recently I've been having a really good time going back and listening to this album called Shaking the Habitual by The Knife. (laughs) And uh, I feel like it's, you know, it's very topical and uh, in a lot of ways 
ties to some of the things that we've discussed on the podcast. Yeah. So it feels like, you know, something that was really ahead of its time. Uh, so we'll get around to that eventually. This is, yeah, this, I mean, we'll, we'll get to it when we talk about it, but um, I feel like this was one of the first big albums that we also talked about, like to any degree um, when we were working together. So I think we both have a fair amount of fondness for it. And that'll be fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think just to like start this out, let's put a pin in Ghost in the Shell standalone complex. Talk a little bit about like I think the biggest thing that I want to bring here, and I don't know if there's any stuff that you want to try and like wrap up or draw out, but um, some of this is around me. So like right now, the Great Gundam Project is doing second gig. And they kind of have a read on Major Kusanagi as this, like, very cold, inhuman person, which is at odds with a lot of what our read has been throughout this. And so some of it is I wanted to, like, let's try and wrap up, to some degree, our read on Major Kusanagi Mm -hmm. in the first season. And also, I think, how that ties into, like, our politics and the way that we view a lot of this kind of stuff, which, you know without giving away too much, we're going to be doing the 08th MS team in a little bit uh, after Hermarty High School. And like, I think that our worldview that we have also filters into how we talked about that series. And so I think it's, it can be useful for us to like put this a little, a little bit more explicitly here, just so people have a little bit more of that grounding of like, this is how we're often approaching things and viewing things as well as I think it'll also be useful for us to try and solidify that to some extent for the first season of Ghost in the Shell standalone complex so that we maybe have something a little bit more concrete, like that's not an entire series, but that is a conversation we had during a question bucket episode that we can point to when we do get to second gig and we're saying like, okay, how is this developing further? And how has it changed in some ways without, again, getting too far ahead of things? So I don't know if you have any immediate starting thoughts here. Um, no, I think I think I have. I know we had a brief discussion, like exchange outside of the pod. So I have a, a vague sense of where you're going, and and I know I have thoughts that will come out organically, like as a response. Because, but I think where I think your thoughts are a great starting point for us. Yeah. So like. I'm trying to think of, like, what's the exact best way for me to start with this. Um, Maybe, like, like, I think what we're, a big theme is going to be, like, Kusanagi's relationship to this, like, system of power. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, the best way to, like, set up where I'm coming at this from. I think I'm going to start with, so I read the Communist Manifesto and capital and like a bunch of marks and angles in high school i was 100 that kid uh i was going to tons of protests reading communist stuff i was like the communist even in my group of punk friends and at the same time this is like looking ahead to a question that we're going to bring up, but I was getting very into, um, through Icelandic music, I was then getting into a lot of like Icelandic culture more broadly, including a lot of Icelandic literature. And I started reading a lot of books by Haldor Laxness. 
Hadler Laksness is a author who's the Nobel Nobel laureate from Iceland, and he was basically a huge communist. <laughs> and for a really long time, his works were not being published in the United States. I think at the time, like way back when he was first doing it, there were a few translations. Most of the English language translations at the time were happening in the UK. And he pretty quickly got kind of like blacklisted from the US in terms of like, here's a figure who's going to be translated, brought over here, talked about broadly. And then around the time that I was starting to get into Icelandic music, which this was like the, the 2000s when I was in high school, there was finally this like push to start translating a bunch of Hador uh, Laksnes books into English and they were being published in the US. And I believe the very first one that they did was Independent People, which is often the one that's like kind of pointed to Nobel laureates for like someone's extended, you know, their their work as a whole. But um, Independent People was often held up as like the big one that earned him that that honor and that like really cemented his place. Um, and it is a, a fabulous book. I know that you've read it as well, Connor. Mm-hmm. And if you read the introduction to Independent People... It is really trying to frame it as this, like, stoic anti-hero, this person who, like, it is so heartbreaking and, uh, like, the story is about, like, this man struggling to try and become independent, um, this like, idea of, like, if you die and have to be buried by the parish, that's, like, a failure because you didn't truly achieve independence, blah, blah, blah. You weren't able to pay for your um, own funeral. Yeah, you weren't able to pay for your own funeral. And so that's like a a moral failure on you and your inability to achieve independence as like this ideal. And a lot of it is this very strong individualism that exists in the U.S. And also like individualism is a key part to a lot of like, especially the mythologizing of Norse stuff. But even original like Norse culture, there was still this like push for individualism and uh, that, like, reading is possible because Hadlodor Laksnes, despite being a huge communist, who he is writing this book as this man is completely destroying the lives of everyone around him because of this capitalist, like, pursuit that he has to have this, like, financial independence, to be free from the state, blah, blah, blah. And that in that he is literally destroying every single person that he loves including like his daughter who is like the the person who he loves the most in this cold hard world but Loxens was also writing from the social realist perspective and from this framing and it's a framing that i i think got from reading a lot of Loxness stuff and applied to other stuff more broadly of this man too is a victim of the system that it is still it is tragic like, he is a terrible person, and I think the book wants you to be aware that, like, he is not a good man, and that we should not mythologize him that way, and yet he, too, is also a victim of the same system that he's working to uphold. And that really entered my worldview and the way that I approached a lot of, like, the political work that I have focused on and have done since. I also got into Zhuang Zhe, who's, like, a very early anarchist as well as then when I started figuring out I was trans, I got into a lot of like trans liberationism, queer liberationism, queer utopia, um, those sorts of areas of, of philosophy. And I think 
at this point, I would say that like my core philosophy or like my core view of the world is focused on liberationism. And I am a communist because I believe that communism is currently the best like avenue for liberating people from the horrors of our current world, which is so dominated by capitalism. And so I'm also like have this communist perspective. And the reason why I have that like priority of like liberationist first is we, we briefly mentioned this, I think, in our final discussion episode uh, for, you know, the end of Ghost in the Shell standalone complex. But like, even if we create a system that seems to be perfect, that is a communist system and everything, there still needs to be ways to ensure that that system does not itself become corrupted or start to like ruin the lives of people. Yeah. Or like and, account for like emergent forms of consciousness, whatever like yeah. it may be. <laughs> and so like this this has always been my viewpoint and especially when I'm doing a lot of work within like I'm focusing on liberationism and I'm focusing on like queer communities and how to help those communities. I have thought a lot about how do I actually reach out to support and to like hopefully radicalize other queer people who are currently bought into the system. And so I will look at trans people who are serving in the military in terms of like, how do I figure out how to get you out of that situation and do that from a sympathetic point of view where you're not going to view me as someone who is like rejecting who you are because you're in the military that I am first and foremost seeing your humanity and trying to create changes that will like, like the military industrial complex and the way that, so we're also recording this on like kind of the heels of Biden overturning the military ban for transgender people serving in the military. And there's been a lot of stuff on Twitter. One, there's been a lot of people who are like celebrating this as this huge win. And then I've also been seeing a lot of people who are further left being like, this is complete bullshit. And I have this perspective of like, you know, like it's bullshit because like, oh, we don't want people, we don't want a military anyway. So like, why the fuck does this matter? And so on one hand, it's like, yes, it is a, from a liberationist perspective, it is a terrible thing when people are barred from employment and that the military is a thing that like helps people, helps trans people escape from poverty and get access to transition. It is, And so like that is a material reality of this function that the military currently serves And so instead of just saying, fuck this entirely, I have to then say, how do we create a system where the military is no longer a thing that is an appealing way for people to escape from poverty, to escape from like situations where they cannot transition this more broadly beyond just like trans or even queer to, you know, the military for a lot of poor people is a way that you get access to, you know, Oh, they'll now pay my tuition so I can get education or, you know, I get like, I get a job in the military and then I also get this experience that I can leverage to try to get other jobs when I'm done Mm -hmm. and all of that, you know, whether it's directly through education or just through like the military being, being on your resume as a thing that will like make you hopefully more hireable. Although the system like this country also does a terrible job of supporting veterans and i think part of it is 
I forget exactly how I said it on Twitter, but like, so right now there's all these attacks on trans kids as well that are happening in places across the U.S. that are focused on pushing them out of sports is one thing, but also a lot of things that are around like denying kids the ability to transition if they do try to access it, like forcing healthcare providers or like healthcare providers who find out for any reason to disclose that to parents who, especially if a kid is like not already doing that, can be extremely dangerous. And so if that is the world, if the world is one where like kids can't access transition, kids can't participate in, you know, like normal school sports or other school activities, like people can't go to the restroom or whatever it might be. And yet they can be in the military. That is a system that is clearly designed for driving trans kids to the military to then die for these wars for rich people. And so that broader system is like the bigger thing that I am focused on in this way where it is then harder for me to demonize the trans person who goes into the military. I still might disagree with their like decision to do that. And yet I cannot just say that is wrong without like looking at the context of what drives someone to do that and to see that as like an avenue that they have and then figure out how do we actually like adjust that system and fix that system. And so for me, some of this is also the fact that I do have this like trans resonance reading of Major Kusanagi. It is then very hard for me to see Major Kusanagi and see the show even directly pointing towards the ways that she is reliant on Section 9 for her body to then not look at this person as someone who is being coerced, whether or not I think she's even aware of it. Like she might not even be aware that the system is coercing her, but the system is coercing her to be the boot that steps on the backs of others because it is the thing that gives her access to any sort of selfhood. And so my read on Major Kusanagi is this person who is being dehumanized by a system. And that system is act asking her to be inhuman and to like enact terrible things on its behalf. And she is going along with it because she is so afraid to lose what little humanity she feels she has left that the system is providing to her. That is this access to her body and things like that. Um, so this is like, for me, when I watch Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex, this is the core tension and conflict of the series as a whole. It's like what is invested in, invests me throughout all of it. It's what ties together for me the weird discrepancies between like the actions that she does and then the words that she will say that feel far more idealistic. I don't think that she doesn't believe those ideal, I, like idealistic things when she is saying them. I don't think she's just putting on a farce there like is my read because I have this read of like, here are the ways that she is being forced into um, being forced into this role and agreeing to this role in like a thing that I think is a failure on her part, but this like fear that she has about what does it mean if I'm not a part of section nine and I don't have an ax have access to this anymore. And then like, what am I the, the old lady that we see with her daughter or clone daughter or whatever, who's like aged rapidly or whatever. Like, is this the other future available to me if I'm not at section nine? So a lot of that stuff, like it helps me in my head. And again, I don't know if this is the creator's intentions, but like having that reading makes the episode about the terrorists 
quote unquote that section nine mows down makes so much more sense and especially like the stuff around major kusanagi not syncing with the the girl who is aged rapidly and things like that because so much of it is like factoring into how is she being coerced by the system to do these things so that she can continue to access like a sense of selfhood that she currently has and is desperate not to lose so I feel like I'm starting to repeat myself at this point, but like, this is my big, like, here's how I va- view Major Kusanagi and how it relates to the way that I approach a lot of political work. Um, and it is a work that comes from like a, a deep compassion for the humanity of the people who are being oppressed by systems, even those who are in their oppression being coerced into like oppressing others, um, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't think that, um, f- for me that it didn't come off as like repetitious. So, you know, okay. I, I think that was all, I think it was really clear and well laid out. Um, there is so much to respond to there. I don't, I don't even know where to begin. I guess like, I guess I'll just do it the same way that you did. So I'll start off with like my background. So I think my first, the first time I ever really like began to seriously engage with like political thought or political philosophy was in undergrad. I kind of started at one school and then I transferred to another. Um, it's not a secret. I, I transferred to University of Florida. Um, and I want to like quick just drop a thing at the very beginning before you really get into this. Me getting into like Marxist thought in high school was not necessarily like me being so cool or anything at the time. I was literally the youngest of five. (laughs) One of them turned out to be an evil banker who was the oldest. The second oldest was at the time kind of getting into like leftist stuff and is still kind of leftist, but like works in tech now and is definitely like more of just like a liberal Democrat person. But because he was getting into it, the, the one who was like, the brother who is just older than me, so like skipping again, was getting from that brother, here's some leftist stuff, and then running with it and like starting to, in like undergrad, get into, you know, this leftist thought, this Marxist thought, and then telling me in high school. And then, so I'm like in high school reading the stuff that my brother's reading in undergrad. This is also why I got into a lot of music early on. Like I listened to Sonic Youth when I was like 12 or something. And it's just because <laughs> my brother was listening to it when he was 16, right? Like, yeah, like it's not like I was so cool as a kid. Um, I just want to like plop that down because I think some people are like, oh, how did you like get into some of this stuff so early? And it's like, I was literally the youngest of five people. <laughs> the one who was closest to me in age, like was, is like, also closest to me in terms of being a communist. Um, I think he's a little bit more a leftist than an actual like full-on communist than me, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's enough. my that's my diversion. I'll throw back to you. Um. Yeah. No, I, I didn't take it as like oh, I'm so cool or, or whatever. I just like for me, I'm not going to go into like the whole. I'm sure this will be, you know we'll get into all of like the more details about our lives and stuff as time goes on, but like the environment that I come from is it, it is like important context for like my views now um, and how I think about myself now. And like the fact that I didn't like seriously think about politics 
until like undergrad it's not a coincidence because of the like social like background that i come from which is you know like this kind of white you know suburban like whatever this class that fancies itself as like apolitical but as we know is is really uh that is not the case um so anyway so i for for a long time i didn't really um i was able to like not engage with politics seriously when i went to uf i i was studying english at the time and uh their english department has some has some really uh, amazing scholars and a, a lot of whom are heavily invested in like various forms of like marxist literary uh, theory, literary criticism. Um, so that's kind of the the starting point for me, going there and reading Marx and you know, first and second wave Marxist thinkers, Frankfurt School stuff like Adorno and um, God, why am I? Oh, Benjamin. Um, I, it's a, such a failure to, to forget Benjamin's name, especially <laughs> since we started the podcast with Benjamin, basically. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, engaging with that kind of stuff, um, at which point I basically became like also invested in that. Uh, and then later on, going on to grad school, continuing to, to study that. Um, I, I would say I define myself as a leftist and as like a utopianist. So I am invested in the idea of utopia. I think it is an imperative goal for humanity to seek it and attempt to realize it because if if not then like what are we doing um (laughs) but uh so that's i think that's all uh i think that's a good like stopping point oh go ahead have you ever read zhuangzi (laughs) i have not but maybe Um, i need to yeah Taoist philosopher he was really like where i first got introduced to um, I mean, it's like Taoism and it's super old, but is often considered one of the first anarchists and also a utopianist. I think a lot of Taoism in general is utopian. And what I especially like about Zhuangzi is like if you read like Lao Tzu or um, some of the other masters, a lot of them like it's not even known if they existed. And so much of them is this like sage on the mountaintop kind of espousing of principles or views of the world and Zhuangzi was like literally lived in a city all of his life and is doing a lot of stream of consciousness writing um some of them was were like some of the writing was probably by his students but it still is like this is an actual figure who lived in a city and was practicing and espousing Taoism and was there's definitely stuff in it that I'm like yeah that was written like hundreds of years ago obviously it could be updated to like feel less weirdly ableist in the way that it's like discussing things Mm -hmm. and yet i think so much of the core is still like clearly this utopian and liberationist philosophy that is like grounded in this anarchist perspective of like to to simplify oversimplified zhuangzi I think the like his primary argument is that 
the more people we can get who are focused on like utopia as a process who are focused on how do I find my place within the world and how I relate to other people and how do I position myself in such a way that I am being taken care of and I'm able to use my skills as best I can to take care of others. And like the more that people that we get people who are just invested in this like pursuit of how do I position myself so that I can help others and also be helped. We will like move closer towards a utopia and that that is a like that is not a governmental system necessarily. It is like a and it is anarchist in that it is a bunch of people just focused on like how do I re- relate to the collective whole and how do I like best embody my ability. So that goes like go it goes down to the Taoist ideas of Tao and Day, which are like the the two words that start Tao De Jing, which the Tao is like the whole is everything is all that was will be currently is uh could possibly be and then the day is like some sort of sense of individual so like honestly some of it kind of relates to ghost in the shell stuff but um in this like how does an individual relate to a society and how do they find a way to like benefit and be benefited um Mm. and not to like fall into a especially at the time like Confucian thought was the other primary thing, which is like highly hierarchical. It is like, if we just have good people in power, that is what will like create a good society. And if like everyone understands their place in this like highly hierarchical version, that is like what a good society would be. And Zhuangzi being like, no, like actually I I think the ideal doesn't have any like true leaders in this sense. And like the most it might have are people who just understand that, even if it's just for a moment, they might be able to like lead something to help, but not in like a hierarchical sense. So I definitely read other stuff beyond that, that I think like explores and gets deeper into a lot of utopianism and like more evolved or like also just closer to our modern existence things. But there's still so much of that, that like, was for me at the time when I was reading it in high school, such a grounding in like, oh, this is like the heart of liberationism and utopianism is like, how do we, how do we radicalize people to the radical notion of like actually taking the time to understand who you are, what you can do and like how you can, how we can like all work to create something better. And that that is like, the foundational core for a lot of it <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. Um, and it, that also so much of Zhuangzi is like also acknowledging how like impossible of a task he is set up and yet saying like, as long as we are still working towards this task, like that is still us achieving some small form of utopia, even if it's not like an, an ending that we may never reach, it is still like a worthwhile thing to do. And Classic in the doing, move. yeah. And like <laughs> in the doing, we are still like creating microcosms of like a utopia. Um, yeah. And like, yeah. So I wanted to kind of also bring that in and just in terms of like, I don't know. I, I think that, that like his writings are, incredibly useful and are also a thing that I think there's definitely a, a certain anarchist streak to me and I, a lot of it comes from Zhuangzi so 
Yeah, so that's why, like, that I was actually I was gonna stop, but I'm glad that you like interjected because that that actually allows me to go on a little bit further. So the reason that I don't say like, oh, I'm just like a Marxist. I mean, I will say like, for purposes of like expediency, if I'm having like a discussion, a political discussion about like contemporary politics, you know, I'll, I'll tell people like, oh, I'm a socialist. But like, I don't, the reason I don't just like straight up identify myself as a Marxist is because uh, it's it's not because I'm not invested in Marxism and like heavily influenced by it. I just, I'm not just like, it's not a one-to-one correspondence, um, which might seem like an obvious thing to say, but like, I just, I resist that term, like for that reason. Um, I'm also really sensitive and this is kind of to touch on what you were saying i'm very sensitive to the tension between systems and individuals i think that's probably came out in our discussion of ghost in the shell um but i'm sensitive to that tension in, in the way that there's a necessary balance there like for people to even exist or to like be able to come to consciousness of themselves they need to exist in, like you know with with other people yeah this is like the hegelian thing like there needs to be some sort of mutual recognition and once you spin out like the implications of that for politics especially like there needs to be some sort of system for people to even come to a consciousness of themselves and then start being like who do i want to be and like you know begin even working towards something called utopia so i'm not just like oh yeah i'm a marxist and like here's this thing that kind of like criticizes marxism and like oh that's that sucks i hate that because it says marxism is bad like i'm i'm very uh certain critiques of like utopianism i'm actually very sensitive to there's a series that I don't think you've seen Psychopaths. Um, no. Psychopaths season We've talked one. about doing it, but... It's it's something that I think it is, in a lot of ways, an anti-utopian series, but it's probably one of my favorite anime series. Again, season one, not anything else. Um, but uh, in, in some ways, like I, I think it brings up some, some really interesting and important considerations. So anyway, I'm rambling, but... Um, yeah, uh, that's the that's the thing I always return to, is utopianism, and yeah, there... I, I think in some ways I think we are fairly close in terms of like how we finally arrive at things, and I think even our like you say utopianism and I say liberationism, and yet I think also like what we're talking about are incredibly close. <laughs> I, um, yeah, yeah, it's just like a a a focus of like what utopia means to me, which is like a liberatory existence. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) Um, So to like, to move on to Kusanagi, to respond to some of your reading about Kusanagi again, like I think the idea of her being cold and inhuman. um, If you've listened to our ghost in the shell episodes, I think, you know, as you said, like our reading is very much at odds with that. Yeah, or is or is one that reads the existence of that as something that is being done to her and not a thing that is like 
intrinsic to her or who she wants to be. Yes. And I feel like, um, to me, in terms of like how I conceive of ideology working and how, and how that uh, manifests in like systems of power, I think what you bring up is an essential aspect of Kusanagi's character. I don't, and I'm not implying that, that you say this either, um, but I don't think her character is necessarily like reducible to that. Like, I don't think her identification with, with section nine is necessarily reducible to like her, the fact that she is coerced into participating like in the system of power. Yeah. I feel like there are things about Kusanagi as a person that are potentially related to, but not like definitively the same as like her, her marginalized status that make her take to that role with such like with such enthusiasm for example like i i brought this up in the podcast um in one of our ghost in the show episodes but i think kusanagi like is someone who yes like she gains these benefits from like being in section nine but she's also someone who like enjoys like having power and dominating other people like at least to some extent like in her role as like this super soldier she like takes to that role with a level of enthusiasm that again is not inhuman but like very human uh but it it's almost excessive like and and the way i see kusanagi is someone who like she identifies with Section 9's mission and the idea of, like, law and order and, like, the concept of, like, police and policing people, like, in its own right, you know? Yeah. Um, the same way that I imagine, like, there... I, I'm sure there are, like, trans people in the military who, like, when 9-11 happened or whatever, like, joined the military because, like oh, like, 9-11 happened, and, like, I'm doing this to, like, protect America. And, like, I think there are people who strongly identify with, like, jingoism as an ideology. And, again, all of this is, like, inextricable from, like, all these other, uh, like, all these other uh, coercive reasons why these this, like, type of rule is attractive to someone who's marginalized but i think like the with the way systems operate and how people like exist within them i think there's another like level of identification that makes people carry out like the imperatives of the system like for because they identify with like the ideology of the system and not only because like oh like this is a good thing this gives me some benefits and like protection that i wouldn't have otherwise so i kind of like have to do this that yeah, reality think... like translate i think in, in people's minds when they're actually like become part of a system their psychology like it their psychology uh like has other things going on 
that make them culpable like for for those acts in in a way that is like not reducible to you know just protecting themselves if that makes any sense yeah yeah to like kind of clarify what i was saying earlier too it's like for me it is not a removal of that culpability from major kusanagi and also i do not think that she is consciously aware of the ways that she is coerced by the system but the way that i you know like if you read independent people Bjarcher is not aware that he's being coerced by capitalism to destroy the lives of everyone he loves (laughs) and is like absolutely committed to the ideology and believes that this is true. And that is like part of why he is so like, he is culpable for all of the horrors that he enacts. And yet I think that book is still also wants you to then look at him as still someone who is being coerced by these systems and it is being like, is being manipulated and is being made to buy into this ideology and that has things about him that the like system can play to, to further, to further pull that out. And so for so much of then like why I I then think about this and frame this, this way for major Kusanagi as well is like, if I was like in doing liberationist work, I would have to look at the situation that major Kusanagi is in and say, like what are ways that we can lessen the coercion of the system onto her and what are ways that I can make her aware of the way that she's being coerced and that she's like being used by the system. And there is like there to a certain degree, there's sometimes a point where you have to be like, no, throw this person out. They're like too culpable. That's too harsh to put it, but like kind of true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, and like Major Kusanagi might be at that point, and yet it is. I still am uh, the kind of person who will often look at someone, and I think I will. I am someone who, especially if it is a marginalized person, and I can see how they are being like victimized so much by a system that they themselves are upholding. I am more inclined to want to at least first try to, in some way, radicalize them rather than to immediately discard them this is like one of the reasons why i have this rule of i i do not publicly talk trash about other trans people and it is because there are trans people who i think are like that i for the most part are like i don't know how i would redeem you and yet i still do not want to take part in the like trashing of them especially in this like current moment one because of like the broader ramifications that can have for the community as a whole. Um, but also because I still hold out more hope for those people than I do for like a lot of people in power. Mm -hmm. And like, if the revolution came, I would offer them a hand first and see if they take it, (laughs) you know, (laughs) um, just because I'm like, you still like you have this clear connection that I can reach to and this like clear way in which I can see that like you need to be liberated and I cannot just immediately discard that even if it is someone where I'm like I am not going to spend any more time on you because you are so far that like I would rather focus my energies on someone else. It, it is more like for me so much more of it is about like where am I focusing my energies to try and help people and to try and bring people like more over versus like 
there is so much of like the internet and Twitter and everything that is like is devoted to focusing on pushing people out of communities and the ways that they are failing and things like that. That for me is just one is just like exhausting and incredibly depressing work to do. And also just feels so pointless because it it is not about like, how do we, how do we like shore up our, our strength? How do we like, how do we build a cohesive network that will be able to actually push change? And it, it, it is so easily weaponized, I think as well against people who don't deserve it by like systems that wish to weaponize it. Uh, you yeah. know, there there have been attacks on Trans Lifeline and like the original founders of that got pushed out of the organization for a reason. And yet there are still people who reject Trans Lifeline as a charity because of those attacks that have their roots in Kiwi Farms, which is a like website that had like people devoted to trying to get trans people to like kill themselves and stuff. And so like, I'm not going to pay credence to something from Kiwi farms, even if they latched onto something real, especially when the organization then pushed out the like people who were embezzling funds. And I feel like there are people who are so quick to latch onto that stuff and try to like, are focused on this form of purity. Yeah. uh, Of purity. And like this, enactment of a punitive state that is often like how like often i look at stuff that happens and i'm like is this queer people just figuring out how to like invent our own prisons or whatever um and like this is a conversation i was having with someone earlier of even when there are like abusers in our community the difference in terms of losing support and losing connection to people for a poor trans person compared to like a rich celebrity who is harassing women. Um, that's some like rich old white dude. The, like what it means to be pushed out or to be rejected for a poor queer person can often be a death sentence. And we have to like, we can't use the exact same methods that we would use with like Harvey Weinstein to deal with perpetrators within our own community. And we, I think we need to look towards more restorative forms of justice. Even if sometimes there are going to be, be people who we need to push out. Like we can't turn to that first. That can't be our first mode of interacting because it is such a word. Like it's that same thing of like, if something comes with a fine, then that is a crime for poor people and not rich people. And like that same philosophy, I think applies to some of the ways that like queer communities will use these ostracization things to push people out in ways that don't take into account the, like the trauma and abuse that the people who are probably perpetrators likely have as queer people. And also the ways that those denial of any sort of resources can be like truly deadly and detrimental for people. And I'm not saying that that means that like we have to be fine with every single person in the community and that there can be like no repercussions for abusers within the community, but it does mean that we have to think about it in a more nuanced way, I think than we do with like, you know, super high profile. Here's like a celebrity stuff. 
um, where it's just not the same. They have like infinitely more resources and like we have to, we have to consider the context and like, I, I will say up front here that I am acquaintance with, uh, acquaintances with someone who was accused of abuse and it was in an intimate like relationship. Um, it was not one where it was like someone grooming or preying on people in the community. It was like literally an intimate relationship. And I knew the person who was the abuser and I reached out to them and I was like, you know, I, I believe the person who's accusing you of this. And what I'm going to say to you is like, I am not going to abandon you, but this friendship now exists. Like it, it, it continues on the condition that you are aware that I'm going to be like accountability for you. That if you are going into another relationship with someone, I am going to warn them about like your previous relationship. I'm going to warn them about like the traumas that you are dealing with. And that is like, if you are going to still be my friend, you are also like consenting to, this is the thing I'm going to tell to like potential romantic partners that you have. And also I'm going to be like working with you, helping you if, as you are trying to work through your own trauma that caused this in the first place. And that is like restorative justice. And that is much harder than cutting that person out of your life. Um, that is the thing where I like check in with them sometimes. And I'm like, how is it going? And things like that. Because, and like, I also, when I will, if they get into a like relationship with someone else, I also be like, I'm telling you this with like, if anything happens, I want you to come to me because I want to be like aware of it so that I can continue to help my friend. And like whatever choice you decide on as well is like fine. And I'm going to support you. And so that is hard work. And, but that is like necessary work if we were actually going to try and help people and not just like recreate jails. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? And um, I think this goes back to like the the beginning of this discussion point, which is like as utopianists or like liberationists or whatever, you know, generally the way to achieve that is not like that vision of, of a utopian existence is like one that accounts for all people, right? It's not about like cutting off certain like people or groups of people are like paring away at like the people that exist until like only the right people are are present right that's a completely different yeah. type of like politics that is i mean you know leads to like it's it's total it's totalizing it's totalitarian yeah um, well and also it's one of the things too of like you know like my friend has this stuff because they were abused by their parents and it's like part of it is also in working towards a like utopian or liberatory existence. It is also breaking those cycles of abuse mm -hmm. in ways that then like future relationships they have future, if they ever like have kids, things like that, like this trauma and this abuse is not going to be passed down. And that is also like, that is a way that you like pair this off in a way that is not this like inhuman. We exercise anyone from the community and it is instead focused on like, how do we repair and how do we like continue to push towards something that is greater, even if it's not going to happen for generations. Um, I think that's one of the things when you're doing like ut utopian work is knowing that like, we're not going to achieve this probably right. Yeah. Like in our lifetimes. Um, and yet there's still like, ways that we are pushing towards it and that that is worthwhile work so 
Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, to take things back to like Kusanagi and how you said you would approach Kusanagi, like I'm, uh, I, I say this sometimes, like my like training is as a humanist. Um, I know our degrees are like, you know, in the humanities technically, um, I take the idea of humanism seriously. Uh, and for me, that's like, it's very hard for me to just be like, no, this person is not capable of change or this person is not capable of like any further self-discovery. And they're just like, need to be rejected because they're like, they're a lost cause or whatever. They're like, I believe in people's capacity for change. And even when that is like, even when that belief is challenged by people who like maybe don't do the things that you would like or don't make the changes you would like, like I still have to keep falling back on that. So my thing about Kusanagi is not like, I don't feel like she's like too far gone or whatever. And I think in fact, what you brought up about her, um, these potentialities for her um, and these considerations she has about, idealism and like different forms of society and like so on are in fact like proof that she's not a lost cause i just see her i see her character as being a person who you know like section nine allows her to have prosthetics and to like have the body that she needs um that she might not have access to otherwise uh, but I think Kusanagi, like, not only does she want to, like, does she need to have this body, but she wants, like, military-grade prosthetics, you know? Yeah. And that, to me, is, like, an important tension in her character of, like, she's someone who is, like, desirous of power and enjoys having power and exerting that power, while also, like, in a way that is, like, inextricably related to like this aspect she's someone who is like vulnerable as well and i think that that for me deepens her humanity it is like even more the case that she's not inhuman it deepens her humanity and it also like gives like it, it deepens this dilemma for her of like what it really means to like the, the possibility of her extricating herself from the system of power it's not just like giving up, you know, certain security um, that she might not otherwise have, but it's giving up a level of like ideological attachment that she has, and also like this this power that she enjoys, um, yeah, because of like the the system gives it to her. And I know we could go on, but uh, I, I mean, I have might be. I have more thoughts on that, but we can move forward. Especially because I think some of what you said is stuff where like responses that I would have would start pointing more to stuff that happens in second gig. And so like, I feel like we've done a good job of like, we've wrapped up our view on major Kusanagi to us at least enough a degree where I feel like we can like, we could just like re-listen to this first hour of this podcast and then 
like pick up second game. Start second and, game. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like start from this this ground. So yeah, I think we, we can move on to like some questions that people wrote in. So we again we had two people write in and both of them had like two questions. So I'm breaking it up a little bit to put it where it's like most appropriate. So this first one comes in from Cyborg Ninja, which a uh, great name, by the way. I love your name. Um, <laughs> and so it says, hey, Ghost of Divers, longtime listener, first time caller. Uh, the term micro machine treatment is one that haunts me due to having been raised with the tiny cars. Do you believe there's a reason for this term being used specifically? Um, I don't know if you have any immediate thoughts on this. Part of mine is wait till we get to second gig. <laughs> <laughs> um, as someone who hasn't seen second gig, uh, honestly, I'm not sure. I I tried to do some research on this. Like I wanted to see what it was in like the manga or whatever, but I couldn't figure that out. Um, yeah, I found so... a wiki article that was like weirdly utopian about what micro machines allowed for the society where it's like there's no hunger anymore. i saw that one blah, 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 too blah. yeah yeah. and i was You're just like, like micro machines are great yeah and i'm like i i don't think this series thinks this <laughs> <laughs> i've i've watched second gig i mean it gets called a miracle but also like yeah <laughs> um but the a certain type of micro machine Technology is a key part of second gig and is referred to as the miracle in some moments. So I like without going into what I know about micro machines in terms of second gig, I think my read on it from like what little I've read of the manga and from Ghost in the Shell standalone complex in general is I think part of it was created as like what would be the analog to medicine that would apply to cyberized bodies where obviously a cyborg like limb is not going to respond in the same way to like traditional pharmaceuticals. And so what kind of like small thing could someone have that would then go into the body and like be able to be some sort of have some sort of effect on the body? Oh, let's just have it be like these micro microscopic machines called micro machines like i at the most base level i think that's all it is is it's just like what would what would medicine look like to a cyborg body oh it's little tiny micro machines and i the one the one so there's the micro machine treatment that comes up in terms of the cyber brain sclerosis in uh the first season i think the one other place where it comes up i forget if they like specifically say it's micro machines or not but i believe the interceptors that are in people's brains and like record their visual data or like their eyes or whatever and then like do that stuff i believe that's also micro machine technology so yeah i think in some ways it was just like what can we have that would be a thing that would be alongside pharmaceuticals but that would then have like the reason why micro machines is such a, a potent new technology is the fact that it is like a medical approach that would then a work for cyberized bodies is I think what's going on. Yeah. And I think the thing that does stand out about it to me is like, at least in Western sci-fi stuff, the go-to for this kind of concept is always nano machines and it's like yeah. micro machines. I think I'm not, I'm not certain about this, but micro and nano are like on the same, they're just like different classes of like size 
they actually denote different classes of size. So I think this might just be like a hard sci-fi thing where Masamune Shiro was like, I'm envisioning these machines as being like, they're not nano-sized, they're micro-sized because like yeah. X, Y, and Z, like sci-fi bullshit reason. Um, or it could literally be like, Nano was translated some weird way in Japanese, and then that's what like Shiro did. Like Nano Machines was translated some way, and then Shiro did it, and then it got translated back as Micro Machines. Like I don't even fully know the history of like how, like sci-fi, the creation, the idea of Nano Machines, then how that like interacts with Japan and everything, right? Or if yeah. it's like emerged at the same time, and or like you know. Around the same time, people came up with the idea of nano machines in the U.S. and then micro machines in Japan or whatever. Yeah, it's like it could literally just be that. I don't know. I wish we had this like great snappy answer of like, oh yes, like yeah. we found this citing this like source. This is like Masamune Shiro said. This is why I did this. So yeah, but all we have is speculation. Yeah, we will we will get to Cyborg's other question in a little bit. But I want to wait until I bring my talk about my non-anime thing, my very anime non-anime thing. <laughs> um, so uh, next up, we have an email from Ian, and uh, they wrote in and had some very nice things to say. Honestly, I was touched. Also, shout out to Strudel, who's a great cat. Much love to Strudel. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, so, glad, we're glad. We're glad she's feeling better. Yeah. So there, there are two questions here, and I'm going to start with one, and then we'll get to the other one uh, a little bit later. So they say, I've been working out my gender identity consciously for a few years, and in hindsight, I was doing it unconsciously for a really long time. Uh, watching Gitsack, I love the abbreviation pronouncing it, <laughs> Gitsack, <laughs> for the first time last year, and it stirred a lot of feelings, uh, capital F, in me. Uh, it was a big part of what made me feel like I finally had to come out as agender to my partner and friends. If you two feel comfortable sharing, what are some pieces of media that were formative for you, and how have your relationships with them changed over time? For example, Persona 3 and the way its social links are more about being there to support your friends in situations where you really can't do anything to act on the problem was a huge departure from other video games I had played up till that point. Uh, where you would definitely go out and yell at the kids' parents uh, so they don't get wouldn't get divorced or find the cure for cancer or whatever. That was a big deal for me as a 13-year-old and changed the way I approached relationships with my friends in high school, and it raised my standards for the kinds of storytelling I expected from games, even though today I find a lot to take issue with in terms of themes and politics in that series. I'm going to talk about Persona 3 a little bit more later, um, and I can kind of address some of this in terms of like persona three specifically but in terms of the actual question like what are some pieces of media that were formative for you um and how have your relationships with them changed over time i think the big one i'm gonna pull out here and uh honestly so i played it when i was 12 i'm pretty sure was chrono cross um, i'm actually replaying chrono cross right now just for fun i i joke that i've beaten it like a hundred times i'm pretty sure the number is like at least 30 or 40 I've played it a lot. 
I when at first when I first got it, I beat it three times in rapid succession so that I could see like I could get all of the characters and I saw all of the endings. So I guess technically like you also beat it to get the the bonus endings um like multiple times throughout a run. Um you just like save and then reload your old save and then keep playing and then do the next part where you can get a different ending. But yeah, I so I like beat it three times and then for a while I would beat it like at least once a year. I haven't played it as much recently. Uh some of it is just like a lot of stuff taking up my time where I'm not playing a ton of games and so I've kind of been focusing on like oh here's a game I haven't played before. But yeah, I was actually playing Persona 3 Portable, finding myself kind of disappointed in it in a way that I hadn't been when I first played it and uh, wanting to return to Chrono Cross and just like what that game means for me. I actually wrote a blog post about Chrono Cross and it was how I came out publicly. So like I might just link to that in the episode description for this (laughs) where like people can read it and it, it really goes into it. But I'm fairly certain when I saw Nikki in Chrono Cross, it was the first time that I, like, became aware, directly aware, that I was attracted to, like, a male character. Nikki is incredibly effeminate in Chrono Cross. I was definitely, like, pulling on Visual Kai stuff that was happening in Japan at the time and that I I wasn't really aware of. But, like, Visual Kai is very... um, like ha- really leans into like androgynous male performers like Gact is one of the the big ones a lot of people know or Hyde and Hide but um actually like my favorite which was kind of proto visual Kai um now is Bucktick there's a lot of like great Bucktick songs out there they have some like I feel like they play with a lot of different styles in a way that's like exciting for me as someone who really loves music but uh yeah it was like really the first time that I was like oh I sometimes find men attractive and like I lived in a very conservative town at the time and like there just were not kids my age that would like, you know, like there weren't people I was seeing around town who would like elicit this reaction with me. And so it also became like this weird thing of like, oh, it's like literally uh, like cartoon video game character that I'm having these feelings for and you know there's other stuff that in retrospect I look back on and I'm like wow they like multiple times have characters comment on how Nikki looks like a woman (laughs) um or is like seems strangely effeminate and I'm like oh there was also probably some weird trans feelings I was having going on um because especially in retrospect when I look at a lot of attractions that I had when I was in like middle school high school ages especially but kind of just around that time in general there's a lot of like weird jealousy mixed up um like I was also attracted to a lot of tomboys and I think some of it was like me being a a butch trans woman and like being envious of these these girls who are allowed to like things like video games or whatever that I liked. And when I liked them, I was like a sensitive boy. And the fact that I liked boy things was like confirming it. And for them, they were like still a girl, but like to like these things. And later on, I figured out like, oh, I am just like 
all the time I've been a, a tomboy. And if I reframe away from sensitive boy to like tomboy, like both of those things are actually touching on some weird middle space. And I wish that I was coming at it from the other angle. And this is also why I like, I mean, still. So I take progesterone now and progesterone has made me like incredibly gay. Um, I used to joke that I was uh, bisexual because I liked women and the concept of men. Um, (laughs) And I feel like that makes one of us. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I feel like, so when I went on progesterone, my endocrinologist who's like non-midary and rad as fuck. And I, I love them a lot. Um, But they were like, Hey, like, just so you know, you know, this is going to have like good effects for what you're trying to do to your body, but also like often lower sex drive and it like will make trans women like become more attracted to men. Like this is just like a a common effect that it has. So like, I want you to be aware of that. And like, we can talk through it. And if you're like feeling comfortable with it or whatever. And I started taking it and my sex drive went up and also I became like incredibly gay. Um, (laughs) So I just like think about teeth all the time now. Um, This is like who I am. This is what progesterone is. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, it, like definitely especially when i i felt more bisexual i still leaned towards like more effeminate forms of masculinity or like more effeminate men than like i've never been into big burly like buff dude um i'm not josh mckenzie if you're listening to this josh i love you but <laughs> you have a type and we we know it i know it um yeah so like that's honestly the biggest one for me is chrono cross Especially the thing where I look back on it and I still, that game, I've played it so many times that it is like deeply familiar to me. It is deeply cozy in like, as I got older and continued to replay it, I became aware of where it was playing into, I think in some ways like naively, but playing into racist tropes, um, especially matcha, who I think is like mamacha in Japanese and the art in the game, you can kind of see it, but especially if you look at the like concept art is definitely playing off of, off of like the mammy stuff that like, I think for a lot of Japanese audiences, probably the people creating this, they like mostly encountered through creepy racist dolls and probably didn't even have the context for like truly like they didn't have the same Western context that we have in America for what those represent, which is not to like fully excuse it. But I think that that game talks about racism and is like trying to be anti-racist at the same time that it plays into tropes and also the English translation they actually built a thing that let them like do changes to the text to insert dialects basically. And a lot of attempts to write people with dialects with like different forms of language can also fall into like weird racisty stuff. So definitely some of that stuff I did not notice when I was 12 and is more uncomfortable now. And yet I still have like such immense fondness for the series or for that game that like I, I cringe at it and yet I still love that game. So I know I recommend it widely, but like also the caveat of it's the best video game ever made, but there's also some rough stuff in it. So, (laughs) um, 
but yeah, I lo- like Chrono Cross is just the, the biggest one for me here. Um, the other big thing is a lot of music that I was into in high school. I kind of alluded to this earlier, but um, especially a lot of Icelandic music I got very deeply into. Um, most of it started with Sierros. Um, so I think I got into them like my brother at the time was in undergrad and was at the college radio station. And I believe sent me like ripped files of brackets or parentheses or like whatever you want to call their <laughs> album that's like kind of untitled but has the the parent like parentheses on the cover having um, a cool brother is such an advantage yeah let me tell you and like sent me the files like literally before the album officially released because i think they got it like a week or two ahead of time to like play and so like you know i listened to that the files that he sent me and then like immediately bought augaita spirin and like I did get Vaughn before the re-release, which is like while so I started like importing a bunch of Icelandic music from Iceland. I would literally save up all of my money for an incredibly long time until I had like a a huge chunk of money and then go to Smeklesa, the like bad taste records. I would go to their website. And I would order just like as many possible, like as many CDs as I could possibly order. Because if I ordered like 30 CDs all at once, which costs like, a, you know, I'd saved money for like a year or two, including like <laughs> Christmas. Like I would ask my parents, like, just give me money so I can buy Icelandic CDs. Um, and... I think it's funny that like while you were doing this, I was just buying CDs at like Best Buy, mm-hmm. which like... In, in retrospect, is, like, a really funny thing to have ever done in my I life. I mean, Best Buy had Sierros. I know this because I went and bought Sierros there. Except they didn't have Vaughn, so I, like, imported Vaughn. Um, okay, yeah. But, but, yeah. But this um, is just, like, the gap between, like, our respective levels of, of coolness here. Yeah, our respective levels of cool older brothers. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, and it's just... It's also funny that the two older brothers who were also really into music were the two ones that I mentioned before who, like, were into any kind of leftism. So, yeah, I don't know. goes hand in hand in some way, I guess. Being cool and, and like, reading Marx. Um, and liking good but, music. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, like, I, I just... Am, yeah, I would save it all up, and if I, like, ordered in bulk, I paid way less on shipping, and so that's why I would do it this way, so I could, like order a bunch and then i immediately started getting handwritten notes from dr goonie who was working at smeklesa at the time probably because they're like who the fuck is this in the u.s who is ordering like literally 30 cds um including like weird stuff that people in iceland aren't even listening to like i have a mr smuck's farm if you're in Iceland, tell me if you know who the fuck Mr. Smuck's Farm is. Like, Cyborg, do you know? I have that CD. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, like, Vaughn, Sierros blew up, but Vaughn originally sold, like, 313 albums or, like, records or something when they when it first came out. Obviously, I was, like, ordering it after I'm sure more Icelandic people were listening to it because they blew up. But, but yeah, all of this to say that, like... So... The fact that it started with Sierros is, I think, unsurprising for me when I look at it. And the the frontman for Sierros, Yonzi, is a gay man and sings in a falsetto voice that... So we're recording this the day that Sophie died. And 
Sophie, I think, has defined a way of expressing queerness and transness in music. And yet I can also see, like, we were listening to a bunch of Sophie today, just while, like, Emily and I and our kid were hanging around the house. And I think it's like infatuation. There are, like, sounds in infatuation where you're like, this is Yonzi's falsetto that is being used here. And I think the way that Yunzi through like just singing in a falsetto, but was modulating his voice in this way um, was in some ways, even a precursor to the more synthetic modulation that happens. Like we're going to talk about shaking the habitual in a little bit, like that does some of it and things. So like this, like this synthetic modulation of the voice, like I think Sigurdros and Yonzi's singing was already pointing to in a certain way as like this expression of queerness. I also started learning Icelandic at this time. And so, and like consuming tons of stuff. So like people, what also happened was that in high school, I could enjoy this Icelandic music and people would look at me as just being like, whoa, who's this person? Who's like, like, this stuff is so outside of what I know. And like, I'm importing stuff where like, they can't even like, unless I am choosing to share it with them, they are not able to access it and listen to it and even like form opinions about it. And so it was like so far outside of something that I could then be like mocked for as a closeted queer kid, as like the ways that I was deviating. It was a way that I could express otherness that was like, had some layer of safety because it was viewed as whoa, like, they're into this, like, weird Icelandic shit, and yet, like, Björk is, like, popular and cool, and Sierros, which is the thing that they were talking about before they blew up, is now blowing up, so, like, let's not question it, right? Like, it seems like they're on, like, the front end of some wave, and in some ways I was, but also part of it was just, like, it was safe and secure for me, like, when I think about it in retrospect, to be so into this music because it was a way that, like, I was interacting with and expressing some sort of queerness that I didn't even know I was doing, but that was, like, I could touch on some sense of otherness and I could do it in a way that was, like, I I was not going to be questioned by the, like, super conservative town I was living in, where, again, like, I think this came up in after theme song stuff in one of the episodes like the even some markers of queerness were okay as long as you like never named it and you like maintain the illusion of the closet and in some ways it was a thing where i could like really fully go into like hey vithravel talafta rausa is like a a song about a queer relationship and if you watch the music video to that it is about like two gay boys being ripped apart by like people on a football field. And I knew that and other people didn't. And that like gave me some access to some world of queerness that I could feel like I was participating in while also like maintaining security and also going onto like the shoujo I forums, <laughs> um, which like, you know, this is the other thing. This is the thing I alluded to. This is, the other part of what are like things, pieces of media that were formative to me and that my relationships have like evolved or changed in some way, or like may have, we're, we're about to watch Evangelion in terms of like us recording this. That is a show that I have not watched since I watched it in high school. But when I think about it, when I reread the manga, which I have done since high school, 
it is like me looking at like, oh, this was also touching on some sort of queerness. We're going to talk about Magic Knight Ray Earth. We're going to talk about Utena. Um, so I'm not going to go into it here, but that was also part of it. So like, if you want some of this, look forward to that. <laughs> look forward to me interrogating queerness and the relationship I had with it in anime. So yeah, that was a lot of spewing. The I think I'm also going to link to, this is one that I played in undergrad, um, but is also one that I've looked back on and contextualized and i think it's my it's the piece of writing that i'm the proudest of is um i wrote a piece about tulip which is a ps2 game um i'm going to link to that as well on like the episode description here because one i'm just like very proud of that piece and i think the other part is the stuff that really made me realize that i was trans and come out as trans was i was reading a lot of trans games criticism uh, including AVB. I was reading her stuff, especially there. There's like a lot of AVB stuff was incredibly formative for me. And I was also starting to talk to some friends who are trans and that was like me figuring stuff out. And part of why that tulip piece is so meaningful to me as well is that I wrote it for Zeal. Um, it was edited by AVB. And so it was like, hey, I've been reading your writing. It like helped me figure out that I was trans and now I get to write a piece for your site talking about like my how my relationship has changed with the game tulip a game that i like hated and mocked when i played it at the time and in retrospect i have like some weird love for uh and yeah i i love that piece and i i'm like i feel like it's a very good uh culmination of some of this stuff for me i'm also going to quick mention around this time so one of the CDs I was importing from Iceland. I was getting music from this band Kimono, which includes, so they had like three albums that released. And shortly before I came out, the person, like the person who wrote most of the songs for Kimono, wrote the lyrics, was like the main guitarist and singer, came out as trans. The very first time that I went to Iceland, I saw Kimono live they were in like a youth center in Kopavoyer, uh like outside of Reykjavik and I took a bus to go see them and I went up to her and both of us were in the closet at the time I hadn't figured I was out I was trans I don't know if she had or not and I went up to her and I said hey I'm your bearded twin because we looked like incredibly similar like that was my like joke introduction of I'm this American at this Icelandic youth center listening to an Icelandic band and I'm a big fan and one of the things when I was like working through my my feelings I was talking to a trans friend and I said I would if someone said like I can just make you like I can magically make you a girl and you'll be a hot girl I would be a girl but I just don't think that I would be attractive and so, like, I don't think I'm trans. And she said to me, oh, honey, that's what gender dysphoria is. It's being like, I wish I was a girl, but I'm not a hot girl. <laughs> and I was just like, well, fuck. Um, and then literally the next day I read a news article that Alison McNeil, the front woman of Kimono, came out as like a trans woman. Um, and as the person that I said, I'm your bearded twin. And, you know, she had already been like doing some transition and it was just like, okay, I think that I look like you and you're trans. Like I literally don't have any fucking excuse anymore if this is my excuse. 
so yeah, that's like a big, how do I like wrap this stuff up? Formative stuff, Icelandic music, video games, talking to people and reading a bunch of like trans games criticism in like the early days shortly before Gamergate, which happened like literally a few months after I came out. A uh, really great time to be starting my transition. Jesus. Um, and, you know, also like literally, uh, I think a week before that stuff happened, uh, Lee Alexander, who is a target of Gamergate, retweeted a piece that I wrote about Chrono Cross, the blog post that I'm going to like link to. And that meant that I actually got some Gamergate harassment because I was like someone who was in her t- Twitter timeline. It was not nearly as bad as like she was getting or a lot of like game developers like Zoe Quinn and stuff were getting. But like I had literally come out a few months ago with a piece about how I was trans. It got retweeted by Lee Alexander. And then I had people like tweeting at me that I should kill myself so yeah, that was a, a very rough time. Fuck Gamergate. Um, but yeah, I'll 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 knock this question over to you now, Connor. Follow that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't think I can. Um, well, I was I was gonna make like a really tacky pun about how Icelandic music, the way you were describing it, was kind of like your hidden place. Like Bjork. Uh-huh. <laughs> that is one of my absolute favorite Bjork songs. Um, it's a, it's an amazing. So song. I appreciate I appreciate the pun. Um, and um, it was very much my my hidden place. I thought about. I thought about like that song and its meaning, a lot, and in a way that, in retrospect, I'm like, oh, it like even more makes sense as like a queer thing I was thinking about. But yeah, I was literally thinking about it, as you were talking about Iceland. It, it's that's what immediately came to mind when you were talking about that. Yeah. Um, well, you still got to make the pun. I did. I did. <laughs> that's what so, that's what matters. Yeah. Um it's not it wasn't quite as snappy, but like that's okay. It was it's better when I just I you know oh, I the, framed it up and laid thing, it out there. I'm gonna quick say so one, I don't know if I'm gonna end up guesting on hot singles. I might. I'm probably gonna bring some Icelandic music. One thing so like Bjork is one of the biggest ones who have come out of there, but a lot of her work throughout like her career which if you go all the all the way back to like tapitikras um you can actually like chart a lot of the history of icelandic music through her she like often did a good job of encapsulating some of the stuff that was happening especially like up through around like vespertine and stuff which i think vespertine's her best album it's my favorite and like my second favorite is uh volnakira which i think is like a direct response to it in some ways or like further development of it but anyway like yeah, a lot of stuff that I think people can be... I can point to Bjork because people are probably familiar with her, but a lot of what was happening in Icelandic music at the time as well that I think points to like also later movements that happen, I think, through influence from Bjork in particular, but like through Sophie and these other queer artists that's happening in the current space now. A lot of what was happening in Iceland at the time that I was really following the scene, um, which was around... I'm going to put heavy scare quotes around Krut, but this was like a name given to this generation of artists that they often rejected, but like there's not really another good name for them that is like arisen in its place. Crute meaning like cute. And I think one of the key elements of a lot of that sound was this pushing synthetic sounds in ways to make them sound artificial and then pushing or in ways that make them sound like organic or like natural and then pushing like 
traditional instruments in ways that would then make them sound like artificial in this way that like blurs this line between what is electronic and what is acoustic and like a really good one to look to for this is uh, the band Amina who does the strings for Cedros and they have these songs where they will like play on a musical saw and then they'll like hit it with a hammer and it will create the sound that sounds like incredibly like it sounds like synthetic sounds that you would be making but they're doing it with like the saw and hammer um or this uh like yeah like saw and like mallet and so like it's a lot of that kind of stuff where they're just like using weird um traditional instruments or like pushing things in weird ways to blend this like what is synthetic what is organic uh that i think then especially like through Björk was one who really, and also to some degree, Sierros was one who like pushed this more outside of Iceland as this broader like perspective on the way that sound could happen that I think filtered more into, especially a queer sound and like a trans sound because for trans people, I mean, we've been talking about ghost in the shell standalone complex. There's like, there's power and meaning to something that can blend the lines between like what is quote unquote artificial and what is quote unquote natural when like transness is something that is called unnatural. And then like, how do you complicate that and mess with that and like challenge that musically? So yeah, I, I might have way more thoughts about that if I ever do guest on hot singles. Um, we'll see if that happens, but just a preview. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sorry to so, keep derailing you. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. No, I'm almost like, I'm just, I'm almost doing it intentionally at this point because I know like certain things I say, I know I can get you going. Yeah. And it's, it's amusing to me. Um, <laughs> so speaking of another thing that I was thinking of, and this is a tangent, another thing that I was thinking of when you're talking about Icelandic music, do you remember that time that we went to the JFDR concert? Yes. And the MC introduced her as Joe Frida. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then I was like, it's Joe Frida. <laughs> like, to you. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I remember, like, JFDR came out, and the look on her face was just, like, <laughs> indescribable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, like, like, totally composed, but just, like, some combination of like deeply offended, but like <laughs> I'm also like totally composed and this isn't that big a deal, but like, I can't believe that this person just like flubbed this that badly. Yeah. I stylized um, my name JFDR for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't even like, you could have just read it out as an acronym, but instead yeah. you said Joe Frida. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was a good time. Pretty sure Brian Eno was also at that concert, but uh, we'll never know. Um, okay, anyway, so yeah, I think my answer to this question is probably going to be a lot less interesting. Originally, I only had one. Now I kind, of, I kind of have two. So I'll just start with the musical one since we're on the subject of music. So you already know this, but our, our dear listeners do not. Prince is probably one of my favorite or no, probably, like, is my favorite artist of all time, or at least up there. Uh, and the reason the reason why Prince's music means so much to me, um, I actually don't think we I've even told you about this, so 
this is like, yeah, this, you know, this is new for me. First time hearing this for everybody. So like, obviously Prince is a great artist and his music is to whatever extent you can say, like objectively, you know, masterful. It, it is that, but it was also, his music was a really, uh, encountering his music was a really formative moment for me in my life. When I was, so I first started listening to Prince like around junior year of high school. And around that time, I was in, I was in a relationship that was kind of like disintegrating and starting like another one that ended up being uh, like a major turning point for me. And part of the complication in like my previous relationship was that I didn't understand this at the time, but in retrospect, like I came to understand this for like various reasons. I was like deeply emotionally repressed to, to an extent that like looking back on it is, is shocking and encountering Prince's music. I don't know why I first started listening to Prince. I think like around that time I was, getting more interested in just like the history of pop music yeah and kind of wanting to like explore different artists and my understanding of prince which i think is still like the general like cultural perception of him amongst people who aren't super into music um was like oh he's like this you know effeminate like guy who sings in like falsetto and like dresses up and like you know you know these like outfits with like like these ruffled outfits and like you know plays with like gender in these ways um that mark him as like effeminate and 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 also that like his music is like this kind of romantic what what have you and as is like my my habit, I kind of started with his first album because this is just like how I am. I'm always like weirdly completionist about media. So I'm always just like, I'm going to start with the first thing and then I'm going to like work my Let's way start through. with first Gundam. That's exactly, yeah, exactly right. So you know, you know my pattern. Um, I have, I've done this with Gundam, which you, you will all find out uh, when, when you listen to our uh, 08th MS team podcast, which is great and i'm looking forward to you hearing it but anyway so i'm like weirdly completionist so i started with prince's first album his 1979 album and worked my way through and listening to prince like prompted it it prompted like i don't know exactly how to describe it other than to just be dramatic and say like an emotional awakening like listening to prince made me feel things that like I didn't realize I wasn't like feeling or allowing myself to feel the way that his music like presents the idea of like vulnerability and like and romantic love and a sense of like needing something which are all major themes like throughout his whole discography. Um, the frankness 
and the force with which those things are presented just like completely struck me and like shattered this shattered this facade that I I had built for myself and it it allowed me to like begin to actually have like to begin to work towards a healthy romantic like a, a healthy concept of like a romantic relationship towards even being able to have like a healthy romantic relationship with someone to even being able to like communicate my feelings for somebody else or like things about sex or things that I needed um, to be able to communicate about like my own emotions, that that was a thing that was like valid and necessary. So yeah, those albums, um, it remains like, those are all still things that in a lot of ways, like I struggle with and so all those albums remain like very important to me just for like their rawness and their honesty and the idea of like being vulnerable for like the things that you're feeling um, and for like who you are, even if that's not like what like some conventional idea of like strength or like what you think uh, like a man should be or uh, whatever your conception of like, like a man should be sexually or in a romantic relationship. At this point, I'm just kind of rambling because it's really hard to put into words. Do you, like, do you, want, do you want me to do the ripcord of this is why you're the Bato to my Kusanagi? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so, struggling against like, masculinity and trying to achieve some sort of like genuine human connection (laughs) yeah um and yeah i mean this does kind of tie back to like my thing with bato my reading of bato and ghost in the shell the idea of like you know trying to break out of this patriarchal system like as like a cis male and whatever that means so uh yeah i might revisit this like later when i can actually do justice to it but yes, Prince, like, uh, has been very formative for me. Yeah, now I look back on it and um, I have, like, listening to Prince still, I'm just always like, yeah, like, I still struggle with that, with, like, what he's saying here. So I would say that's, I don't know how much, how much my relationship to it has changed, to be honest. The other thing, and this is really weird to bring I, up, like... To- like to just quick say i i do think from the version of you that i know and from what you said i think you have grown a lot like i think i've said this to you before but like you know i already knew that i was trans and then i started working at the law firm where we met and like immediately went back into the closet. And some of that was just like, I was not doing medical transition yet. Um, but also some of it was like quickly picking up signs that that might not be a place that would be great for me to be out in. And it was just a lot easier when I still wasn't medically transitioning to just be in the closet. And then I kind of just started medically transitioning and then like just started telling people in the office, like, yeah, I'm, I'm a woman. And 
really it was like you and Lindsay were the only two people who like there are a lot of people who were fine with it but you were like the two that were like I I think a big thing that you get when you are a lot of marginalized identities but like especially a lot of queer stuff is people being like oh I don't care that you're trans and my reaction is often this like, but I actually do want you to care. And I want you to care in the good way because there are so many people out there that care in the bad way. And like you and Lindsay were people who seemed to like, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't like, like in that sense, it wasn't like a, you didn't care. Like both of you were just like, Oh, that's like fine. And yet you did care in this way of like, you were the two people who corrected people when they misgendered me. Like no one else in the office really did that. And that's one of the reasons too, where like, I'm still great friends with you. And I, you know, like we do role-playing stuff together and you are a person who is a like player at that table who I think is very good at noticing if someone else hasn't been talking and you as a player also being the one being like, let me see if I can bring this person in to the action without it always being like me as the GM who does that. So I want to like say that to you (laughs) right now. I think you have done good work at like not being a horrible, broken, um, like stuck within patriarchy, can't express emotions or anything person. (laughs) My perception of you Um, be heartfelt here on the podcast. We can cut this if you want me to. I don't care. No, I, 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 Yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't want you to cut it. I appreciate you saying it. I think, without getting like too deep into the, like non-pod conversations we have, you know. I sometimes like communication. This is probably weird for people listening to the podcast because it's it's just like this podcast is just all us talking, um, but like communication is something that I like really still struggle with for like various reasons. And oftentimes I'm like, I prefer to be silent. And there are times when like someone like me being silent is not acceptable Uh, or like whatever circumstance I'm in. There are times when in that circumstance, it's not acceptable for me to be silent. And I try, like, I make it a point to, like, try to be very, like, attentive to that and speak when it's necessary. But if I don't feel like, if I don't feel like my voice is needed, then, like, I'm generally just, like, err on the side of being silent. And... It's very Taoist of you. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, just, like, don't influence the events. Just you know, let them happen. Um, But, you know, the downside of that is I'm like, you know, I'm often questioning myself of like, could I be a better friend by like, like, I I feel like this is the way of like being a good friend is not being like, is is being like passive in this way. But then I'm just like, am I like, by virtue of not like, offering by virtue of not being vulnerable on my end to being like hey like i'm gonna say something and maybe it's like the wrong thing and like i don't want to do that but if i do that maybe it like 
starts a conversation that would be good. Um, and instead I'm just like, I don't know what to say. Like, I definitely don't want to like do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. Um, and like burden somebody else with that. So instead I'm just going to like, you know, be attentive and like wait and see like if, if it becomes, if it seems to become appropriate for me to speak and then I'll do that. But anyway, uh, that was a situation where like I'll always remember like the conversation we had where I first became aware of like explicitly of like you being trans and that was one of those moments where it was like okay this you know I, I know explicitly like what to do but yeah anyway that's you know that's like sappy friend stuff you can cut that if you want I love you, Connor. Anyway, well, let's. I, I love you too, but you know, we're we're keeping it nice and snappy here. <laughs> yeah, we are. We're just. Oh my gosh, we're not just like going off on tangents. Yeah, um, we're so good at podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for liking our show. Yeah, <laughs> especially it's those of you who are our friends. Um, thank you. It means a lot, honestly. Yeah, I will say, Ian and Cyborg, your emails really really made me smile and we're very touching so thank you for writing in um thank you for listening and now to finish answering ian's question another uh piece of media that's really formative for me is uh one that i i first read in undergrad and i've read a couple a few times since um is uh james joyce's ulysses now i know how this answer sounds (laughs) And, like, I accept that. Ulysses is, like, I, I just want to say, like, this is trying me being, like, this is the least posturing answer that anyone's ever going to give about Ulysses. Um, so much has been said, like, about this book, and it's probably generated, like, more literary criticism than any single, like, non-Shakespeare book ever. But it is, in fact... Like, my reading of it has been really formative for me, Um, so, you know, I have to bring it up. I think in the first instance, this is a book that, like, is often my perception of it going in, and again, what I think is a shared perception amongst a lot of people, is, like, of something that is this type of, like, exercise in mastery, like a formalist... Uh, this masturbatory formalist, like difficult for the sake of being difficult, like work by this genius single man, James Joyce, who is the greatest writer of all time. And it's all just about like James Joyce displaying his brilliance and, you know, you having to conquer this like behemoth of a book or whatever. And my reading of it. And so that's how I knew Ulysses. Uh, I was very fortunate in school to read Ulysses for the first time, like in an environment um, with some really great scholars who helped who helped me come to these conclusions. But basically, I can't, you know, I can't explain like every, I can't provide adequate context, but I'll just say Ulysses is a book that is deeply like socialist or communist, depending on what, you know, 
how far you want to take that interpretation. It's also a novel that I view as being extremely anti-patriarchal. Much is made about like the fact that it it makes direct reference to the Odyssey and it uses the Odyssey as like a framework um, for for its own structure. My inter- there's different ways of interpreting this, but essentially like what I'm going to argue is that it takes as its starting point subverting this like foundational patriarchal myth of Odysseus, who is like the quintessential patriarch and the Odyssey, which is about like the patriarchal order, his like his own household being like destabilized and then him like restoring it. And the uh, Ulysses pushes back against that in a very extreme way. It's also a book that is meant a, a lot is made about the difficulty, but um, it's also a book that like challenges the social connotations of the novel, which is like, which in and of themselves are individualistic. Like the idea of like a novel is a thing that people generally like read by themselves. They go into their study after like running their business and then they like read a novel at night. And it's this very like deeply individualistic activity. Ulysses is a book that is meant to be read by communities of people together. Again, this is all this is arguable, but I think this is there's a pretty strong case to be made for this. The difficulty is the point of the difficulty in one sense is to is to uh, destroy the single reader model so that you will have to engage with other people. You will have to bring a community to interpreting this book. Um, and then in the course of doing that, the the book itself encourages certain utopian and socialist or Marxist ideas uh, about what a community should be, what like a utopian equitable community should be, whether that's a nation or you know something on a smaller scale. Uh, and then lastly, so... Oh, Needless to say, like a lot of the stuff that I was talking about earlier, um, my political views are heavily influenced by Ulysses and like the discussions that I've had around that. Um, the other big thing and the most important thing is Ulysses helped me realize how important it is that my own voice and my own worldview be relativized. I think as like a white cis straight man so much of the world is by and for like people like me this type of voice that i have is like so dominant in like our society and in like western society generally like it this type of voice is part of the hegemony and Ulysses, some of the like literary things it does with voice are like expressly deconstructing this exact model. And that was probably one of the biggest like utopian realizations or takeaways that I had um, that I still carry with me. Just the importance of like, I want to be relativized. Like I don't want my perspective 
I don't want to totalize my perspective. Like I don't want to dominate others. I don't want my voice to be like the only one or the dominant one or the one that like wins out. Like I want to be just like one, uh, like I want to be relativized by like the worlds and the voices of others. This is something that happens in the, one of the dynamics that I really love in our tabletop games because all of us are essentially co-creating and co-writing this story and having my perspective like relativized is just like par for the course there but uh yeah that's a big um that's the major takeaway for me and something that I still consider a lot how people like the difference between wanting your voice to be totalizing versus wanting your voice to be relativized um, yeah. in society generally. So yeah, Prince and Ulysses. <laughs> Weird combo, but it's like from an out for an like listeners are probably like, wow, that is quite a combo. For me knowing you, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. Those are yeah. those are like two key pieces. I could have guessed yeah. that. <laughs> I mean also I'm sure like you're like, oh yeah, I, I know Nia, like Chrono Cross and Isolating Music. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember the time like you recommended Chrono Cross to me and I was like, Yes, but I have to play Chrono Trigger first. Because that was the one that came out first. Yeah. <laughs> um I mean, to be honest, like people say that you can play Chrono Cross without playing Chrono Trigger and when I first played Chrono Cross, I didn't have an SNES as a kid, so like I hadn't played Trigger. I do think you get something out of playing Trigger first because Chrono Cross is so engaged with like its position as a not quite sequel and what that means. Like, what does it mean to be a sequel to a game about time traveling? And how do we like recontextualize the story of Trigger through Chrono Cross? And in my opinion, like does it more interestingly than Metal Gear Solid two, but that's my opinion. Oh, you can argue with me. fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah. Like, also, I think one of the the first things that I also recommended to you was like, oh yeah, one of the greatest rock albums of all time, Polyphonia by Opera Organ Quartet. And then I think you were like, oh, okay, but I'm gonna listen to their debut album first. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I did do that. The patterns repeat. I mean, yes. honestly, their debut album is like, I think more musically interesting in some ways. Polyphonia is like them reaching at a little bit more of a poppy accessible sound. Um, but also like, it's just like the songs on it are just such fucking bangers. Yeah. Polyphony is such a good fucking album. Um, it is. It's a, it's yeah. It's a great album. Highly recommend yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, um, also has, uh, I don't think it's Hatsune Miku, but another Vocaloid saying Bill Gates, Steve jobs, Bill Gates, Steve jobs, Bill Gates, Adam bomb, <laughs> Steve jobs, Adam bomb. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's also like a, it's a secret. It's like a uh, sneakily polemical album. Yeah, you know, export America. Yeah, there are yeah, there are the very few. Here. If if you like craft work, check out Opera Organ Quartet. Is my advice to anyone listening to this. Yeah, um, it is very explicitly like craft work um, uh, influenced. 
Also, it is far more electronic than a lot of the other Icelandic music kind of stuff I was talking about. And yet even they are engaged with like playing faulty equipment in ways that will create like weird organic sounds within the music. There's this one interview with them that I love where they're talking. They ask him like, what's your favorite piece of equipment? And I forget who it is, but like runs over to this like busted keyboard. And it's like, I love this one because whenever we're playing, there's a part in the song where I have to hit this key and I never know what sound is going to come out. (laughs) And I'm like, this is like the most opera organ quartet answer. And like the most Icelandic music at this time answer of like, oh yes, my favorite piece of equipment is this one where I push a key that I have to push in the song and it makes weird noises. It's <laughs> amazing. So yeah. Anyway, we can we can move on and do our like a little bit of non-anime stuff. So yeah, I I wanted to bring and talk about Persona 3 Portable, specifically because so I have this Twitter account that is at your underscore Juness. I started it, honestly, I, I the last time that I like did it, what I call an at your Juness run, I actually did it before I like came out and transitioned. And I did it with Persona 4, uh, Persona 4 Golden specifically. So I think it was like, literally I beat Persona 4 Golden, realized that in like two days, it was going to be the first day of like the in-game calendar in terms of the real world world calendar. And I was just like, I'm just going to play this so that like, if it is, you know, May 5th in the real world, I'm playing May 5th in the game. And so I'm just playing through this game one day at a time and doing a screenshot or two and posting it to a Twitter account. And I find that I really enjoy this way of playing like a Persona game. It asks you to inhabit like the the space of the character in a way that um when you like the way that persona games are set up they're a mingling of like jrpg and then dating sim stuff and so there's a a calendar and every day you get to choose like here's what i'm going to do and sometimes you'll choose like i'm going to go into a dungeon and if you choose that you're going to be spending multiple hours working on the dungeon whereas if you choose i'm gonna hang out with a friend you're gonna like have like maybe a 10 15 minute conversation at max and then like that's your day (laughs) and so when you play through it like just straight through so much more of the play experience um in terms of just like pure hours is the dungeon stuff then if you do it one day at a time you realize like how little of this character's actual life is doing that stuff and how much of it is just hanging out with people like going to your day job or you know after school job or whatever and i found like i enjoy the world of persona games often and just like inhabiting that world as like here's a here's a game about existing in like a Japanese city and hanging out with people. And this is one of my favorite things about persona five is I think like that game really, really captures the feeling of living in a city. Um, One of the first things you do is you have to figure out how to navigate the train lines. And like literally you as the player have to look at like signs that are hanging from the ceiling to figure out what train to go to and things, which is just like great. Like that is, that is not an experience that often gets portrayed in especially games of like this size. And so I did it with persona four golden and I was actually doing a charity stream and had one of the things where someone donated, I forget how much money it was, but if they donated a certain amount of money, like 
I would then do a at your Junius run of Persona 3 Portable doing the female route and then someone donated. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do it because I specifically was going to do it like this past year because it would also line up where like it's not only the same calendar day, but it's also the same day of the week, which is like especially fun because then it's like, oh, it's Sunday. And also it's like Sunday in the game, um, which I think just like accidentally happened the first time I did it. But this was like, I know I can do it now. I haven't mentioned this Twitter account on this podcast because by the time we launched the podcast, I was starting to get really down on Persona 3 Portable. Um, There's multiple reasons. One was... Compared to later Persona games, once you, like, quote-unquote, max rank is what people say, which is, like, you go through the main story of, like, here's your friendship or romantic relationship. Um, in the terms of romances, it's usually, like, literally the last thing is you finally get to, like, say, hey, I love you or whatever. Let's let, let's start dating. And this is where it becomes especially weird and egregious because, like... You know, Ian referred to, like, the cure for cancer. There's someone who's, like, the culmination of when you max rank their thing, he's, like, throughout all of it has been sick with some terminal illness and is, like, hey, I finally decided how this story that I'm writing is going to end. And then, like, you never see him again. And, like, there's a sad poignancy to that. Um, There are some with, like, the little girl whose parents are getting divorced where it's, like, hey, I'm literally moving away to live with my mom. I'm not going to be able to see you anymore. And so those, like, feel, like, clear, like, oh, here's some sort of encapsulation of a relationship that you had with this person. Whereas when it's like, oh, I'm going through this relationship and then at the very end I can, like, choose to date them. And then you literally can't hang out with them afterwards. That's fucking weird. (laughs) And, like, Persona 5 in particular has, like, entire dates you can go on even after you've max ranked. And those dates have, like, no mechanical purpose. Other than sometimes you can get, like, an item that's a decoration you can put in your room, which is still, like, not that mechanically important for, like, gameplay. Whereas normally when you're ranking stuff up, you're, like, at least being able to fuse better Persona for the game. Or in Persona 5, they even add, like, other skills that you get as you, like, get closer to the people who you're having, you know, friendships with. But, like... While I'm playing Persona 3 Portable, I'm also playing through Persona 5 Royal just like the normal way, not doing it one day at a time. And at the end of that, my character, I have gotten so like incredibly good at planning out these games. I think especially from when I did Persona 4 Golden as like an at your Juness run that for both of them towards the very end, like there are literally days where I didn't have... I want to max rank everybody and I didn't have anyone to hang out with because I've been like so far ahead on my goals of like when I need to have people like when I need to hang out with people in order to make sure that I I'm completing stuff in time. And in Persona 3 Portable, it was literally just like, okay, I literally have nothing to do. Like everything that I can do in this town has some sort of thing that is like going to improve a stat or whatever. And none of it like, is important anymore because I already have max stats. I've already like max ranked everybody except for like these two people who I can't hang out with today. And so I would literally just like have my character go to the movies, which is a thing that you do to like build up stats. But I was just like, okay, they're going to go to the movie today. And so much of it was repetitive in ways that I'm like, this isn't even interesting to post a screenshot of. Um, and so I just stopped posting screenshots unless something actually 
like interesting happened. So there are a ton of days where I just wasn't posting. Um, but really the biggest reason why I soured on Persona 3 Portable was the handling of this character Chidori. So Chidori within the game like has this elegant gothic Lolita look and uh, ends up being the love relationship for this character Junpei. So Persona 3 Portable, the female route, like I want to start off with like, here are cool things about Persona 3 and especially Persona 3 Portable. When I first played it, it felt transformative because I had never, one, I had barely played dating sims up until this point, And two, I had never seen it fused with like a JRPG like this. And that entire concept was like very cool to me. The thing is, I feel like Persona 4 did it better and also engaged with like ideas of queerness better, even as there are like also made like it Persona 4 is problematic. And I think Persona 4 Golden fucks stuff up even more than the original and yet is still engaging it with it in a way where I can like still play through it and be like, Hey, there are still like Naoto is to me clearly a trans character and Golden like walks some of that back even more than the original does, even though the original has some optional content that you can totally not see, but that like also can be shitty in that regard. It also felt so much more optional. And so like I, when I first played through it, didn't see any of the shitty, like kind of transphobic stuff that happens around now to towards the end beyond just some of the like slightly weird stuff that happens, but that's like not nearly as egregious. And like, a joke before I came out, my Twitter icon before I came out was Chie Sadanaka from Persona 4, but I had like in Photoshop drawn on a beard on her <laughs> because I was like, I am Chie, but with a beard. And that sure was a statement that I was making as a closeted <laughs> trans woman. <laughs> um, but and like Chie's whole thing, like Chie is very clearly like lesbian coded throughout the game. And so, like, I play it now and I have my headcanon of, like, oh, no, the main character is, like, also a trans girl. And, like, even some of the relationship stuff that happens with Chie, you can, like, read within this. I know that this is, like, an overly generous reading I'm doing. And especially Persona 5, like, in terms of its story and plot, leaned even harder into queer aesthetics while leaning away from actually like pointing towards any sort of clear queerness and the few, like there are two gay characters that are handled really poorly. The one thing that's really weird is there's Lala Chan, who's the operator of a bar, who's like a trans woman or drag queen. And that every time I've played, the game seems to treat like incredibly well. I've never seen the, at least the English translation, like, misgender her or do anything weird around her and she's like legitimately just a great like minor character in this game um and like atlas you cowards let me make a persona game if i made persona 5 joker would be canonically trans and it wouldn't even be that hard because then when joker goes to that bar it's literally just like i'm gonna go work at the bar where the trans woman works and they do like drag shows and she's like helping me out with stuff when i go to see the doctor tai takemi who's giving me experimental medicine that's like under the table it's literally because it's like hrt that she's prescribing to me i it's so easy for me to like write the here's an actually queer version of persona 5 royal that then also makes the new content in royal that's like kind of based around ideas of utopianism actually meaningful because in the current version 
Joker as this like weird blank character has nothing to like has nothing that the the character who's offering this like false utopia or this like utopia not as process but as some sort of end state where people are just like everyone is forced into something that's like an illusion of happiness rather than anything that's like actually working towards dismantling systems. Um, Listen to our Ava podcast on more. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and um, you know, that whole like thing would be so much more meaningful if there was an explicit Joker's trans reading. And then what the character was offering was like, you have always been a cis girl. And then Joker saying like, no, actually my transness is something that I'm like choosing. And I don't want to be a cis girl. I want to be a trans girl because this is like who I am. And coming at it from that perspective gives me like a sense of like queer utopianism that I don't want to lose. And that would be such a better story. So again, Atlas, you fucking cowards, let me make the next persona game. Um, But to go back to Persona 3 Portable and to Chidori. So again, she's this like gothic, uh, elegant gothic Lolita, which is like kind of a goth subculture that existed in Japan, especially around the time that this game was being made. Like Emily was super into EGL stuff when we were first dating, which this game came out later when I was in undergrad. I mean, we were still dating then, but um she was no longer like buying EGL magazines and wearing EGL dresses. Um but that was like who she was at some point. And the the thing with Chidori is that I'm going to have to like put a warning at the very beginning of this because we talk about abuse multiple times here. Yeah. Um and like other issues, but Chidori self-harms and like her persona's power is around being able to like heal, but heal through the transferring of like harm and pain between people and like taking on other people's pain. And a, this is like not a opt in part of the story either. This is a thing that is just a part of the main story is like one, her going through like self harming and then like being able to heal her body. And yet like still the self harming is a problem. And like, Basically, what happens is there's a part where, like, so Junpei is basically just creeping on her in a, like, at a train station and then keeps creeping on her. And then the game's just like, and then she falls in love with him because that's how it works. Uh, If you just keep, like, randomly hitting on a girl at a train station, she'll fall in love with you. That's already, like, bad and weird. But then she's like struggling a lot with the self-harm and everything and ends up in the hospital through other like aspects of the story as well. And is like basically pushing Junpei away. And then you as like the main character have multiple options where if you talk to Junpei on a, on certain days, he will talk to you about what's going on with Chidori. And then you can say like, I know she's telling you not to go see her, but you should go see her or being like, "Mm, yeah, she's telling you to stay away. Like maybe respect what she's saying. If you say the respect that she's saying, stay away from me, she dies and like basically gets fridged for Junpei to be like, you know, at the end, like admits her love to Junpei as she's like dying and takes on what would kill him, like his wounds with her like weird healing powers and dies and saves him. And that's like really fucking shitty 
And then if you tell Junpei, like, hey, I know she said, like, don't talk to her, but, like, keep being a creep to her, (laughs) then it happens slightly differently where she, like, will come back. Like, she basically doesn't fully die and then survives and manages to live. And all of this stuff is... It is framed in this way that when I first played this game in undergrad... So I self... Like, in high school, I self-harmed a lot. And, like, I got better. And by the time I got to undergrad, I wasn't really self-harming anymore. I still have scars on my body from it. um, But, like, I have not self-harmed since high school. I still sometimes have ideations of it, which are, like, just intrusive thoughts that I have. It is a thing that has happened less and less... It is a thing where as soon as it starts happening, I now have like immediate things that I go into um, where it's just like, okay, like I will like ask my wife to chop vegetables for me just so that I don't have to hold a knife. Even if I like, and I'm nowhere near actually acting anything out, but if I'm like starting to feel that stuff, these are just like things that I will do. And especially when I first played this in undergrad, I was still so fresh out of like going through self-harming and also a lot of other trauma that I had. So a lot of, I had kind of like, I I had had a lot of ideations for self-harm before my first girlfriend, but then my first girlfriend had uh, severe anorexia and self-harmed and that like full on triggered me into doing it. And I was also doing it from this, like much like Chidori, this, like, I am trying to take on her pain because I want her to feel better. And in some, like, weird savior complexy way, like, you know, it's it's all this kind of fucked up stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I also had for a long time this sense of, you know, my second girlfriend then, like, verbally and emotionally abused me in ways that were also specifically tied around my failure to live up to people like Gact and Hyde and Hide, like these like visual Kai, super androgynous effeminate men in ways that like also then tied into fucked up stuff that was going on with me about gender that I didn't understand or know at the time. And then I met like Emily. Well, actually I knew Emily while I was dating like my second girlfriend. And then like we started hanging out even more Um, literally when my second girlfriend broke up with me, the way that like I got over it is Emily and a friend, like mutual friend of ours um, invited me over to that mutual friend's house. And we ate ice cream out of the carton and watched Kino's journey. So more about that when we go and talk about Kino's journey in like a year. (laughs) Um, 2022. And then and like Kino's Journey is like a, a show that has an explicit non-binary character in it. And then after we watched some episodes, they like did my did up makeup and I forget if it was that night or like some other night, like also let me try on like skirts in this way that was just like, ah, oh, we're just like having fun. Like, you know, we've been like joking throughout the night of like, oh, it's like a girl's night, you know where we're like eating ice cream and watching movies or whatever. Um, And so it was like in this like very jokey way where like, if you asked Emily, Emily wouldn't be like, Oh yeah. Like, and so she's a trans woman or something. Like I understand this either. Like none of us really knew what we were playing at, at that moment, but it was still this moment of like me suddenly feeling in some way, like recognized and validated, especially in the face of having just come out of a relationship 
where I was heartbroken despite the fact that the entire time I was being like abused for my failure to live up to like a feminine androgyny that this person wanted from me. And here I was just like allowed to like in a celebrate celebratory way just like wear makeup and just like fall asleep on the sofa with like two other girls in this way that obviously turned into later on Emily and I started dating like you know a month or two later but even at that time it was still just like the way it was that way that I I think a lot of like young girls especially like whether or not they even turn out to be queer have this like access to feminine intimacy with some of their friends that I like in that moment was given access to in a way that I just never had before. And yet I still had a lot of trauma and ways of processing it. And so for a lot of like the very early parts of my relationship with Emily, I was still in this mindset that like being in this, like that Emily would be able to save me like this, like very fraught idea of what relationships with people were. And not that like, this was just a healthy environment for me to actually be able to figure myself out and get to a healthier space myself that I was like being supported through my own work and the way that Chidori's issues are so instrumentalized towards Junpei and Junpei's story in Persona 3 Portable. I don't think I recognized how fucking horrific it was when I played it in undergrad because I still thought of like, I, I was still struggling with this like savior complex kind of stuff within myself and like the ways that I thought about relationships in a way that was like, I think not fully healthy because I was still coming out of a great deal of like both trauma from being abused by a a romantic partner, as well as like just the trauma of growing up as a like closeted trans kid, which is just a deeply traumatic thing in general. And I played it this time And also around the time that I was playing through it, other things happened in my life that caused me to start having some more self-harm ideation again. And I just got so fucking pissed at this game for like what they did to Chidori and how they handled it. I was incredibly mad at Persona 3 for a while. Um, And I was sticking through it in part just to like, I wanted to do the completionism. Like this was a thing where someone donated money to charity and I'm going to play through all of it. And I wanted to complete it. And I also wanted to get to the like relationship, the the social link that exists with Igis, because I had heard from so many people of like, oh, you know, it's like the the canonical lesbian, the one canonical lesbian relationship that exists in the Persona series. And it's so good. And so I was also like hanging through for that. And you can't even start the social link with Igis until like literally the end game. And so I wrapped it up like a few days ago, basically. Tomorrow is literally the last day of the game where I'm going to like defeat the final boss and finally be free of this game that I've decided that I don't like. So I like, I'm sorry, Ian, that you have this fun. There's still some cool things like what you brought out about the relationships um, and the way that it's like in many ways about helping people through stuff that you can't change is... I think still good and like cool things that I see in the persona series in general. And that um, I definitely saw for the first time when I played persona three, all those days or all those years ago. But also I, especially with the way that they handle Chidori, some of the social link stuff too, has just felt so much more like instrumentalizing the people in your life to improve yourself or something in ways where I think it's at odds with like 
the good part that you pulled out. And it, it's it's really soured me on especially Persona 3. But it's also, I don't know, it's, it's hit me very hard, especially as someone who often was like, mm, I like Persona 4 a little bit more, but Persona 3 is like almost as good. Um, and now like that has changed so much for me. But I, I'm going to like quick address the Igus romance stuff here. So uh, Cyborg also wrote in and um, I think she's been following the I, I think I posted in actually my locked Twitter account about some of like my thoughts and uh, some of the screenshots that I had from the end of the Igus route. So Cyborg says seeing the end of the Igus route in P3P has been strangely upsetting despite very low expectations of the team. What are your thoughts on greasing your girlfriend's heart as a culmination of a relationship and perhaps more widely the treatment of the social links? So I think I'm actually, I'm not going to read it all here, but I'm actually going to drop in the audio from the game of what Igis says, just so people have context here. I, um, actually have one more favor to ask. At the base of my neck... Behind the knot of the ribbon, my most important component is located there. The source of the artificial psyche that makes me who I am. My emotional engine. The papillon heart. It's extremely delicate. So I am forbidden to expose it outside of the laboratory's clean room. I want you to touch it. If exposed to your skin oils and cells, your genetic information will most likely be burned into it. Even so, I want you to do this. I want to leave indelible proof in this body of the understanding that you and I have reached. Not as a memory that can be erased, but as something permanent, something irrevocable. direct contact with my heart. I... I apologize in advance if I say something odd or make unusual noises. As a precaution, I will cut off motor functions to my arms and legs. Well then... Um... Will you... Untie my ribbon? So... There are a few things with this. Um, I, I want to start with like the good part first, which is there is a certain amount of like transhuman sexuality that is happening here that I can point towards. And if 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 it was handled correctly, would be really cool. This is like a thing that nobody but you and I have context for. And I guess the other people who are in our our campaign at the very end of uh, the first campaign that I ran, there was a scene where one of the other player characters was playing this like spider robot who throughout it had been like coming to senses of humanity and uh, like developing as a person and this like process of losing some of that naivete. Um, I have a great fondness for like 
the cyborg girl who wants to become a human trope. I think my first big introduction to it was Tio from Grandia 2, who I actually homaged with the name of a character in our campaign. Um, you might be like, oh, Tio. Yep, I, I know the connection now. Yeah, and I guess was also one of these for me when I first played Persona 3. Um, obviously, like Major Kusanagi, to some degree, uh, hits on this trope in ways, although I think is a far more complex and nuanced and coming at it from a slightly different angle. So, like, I have a great deal of fondness for this trope, and I have a great deal of fondness for ways of portraying, like, these kinds of forms of intimacy or, like, transhuman sexuality. And so when we did the campaign, there was a scene where Tio, the, a non-player character I was playing, transferred and, uh, like, they were a... Neo-automato is the term we had, which is, like, kind of a replicant-style robot or also like ghost in the shell kind of where it's like this looks like a human from someone looking at this person they wouldn't be able to tell if they're a robot or not it's not like Mm -hmm. clearly metallic parts it is like a a biosynthetic type of robot and so they were like this biosynthetic like replicant style robot and they were transferring this like little like mechanical spider robots consciousness to a body like theirs that was Also, like within the context of our game, the body of their former lover who decided to become the blood in the soil that would then like uh, feed this thing called the mother of the myriad beings. Uh, Me going on my full Taoist shit. (laughs) But anyway. Just good memories here. Yeah. Good memories from this campaign. And we were playing uh, Firebrands, um, which is a really cool system that I think has a lot of stuff built into the actual, uh, like the way it works is that you basically pick like games, quote unquote, that you're playing that are like small rules that a lot of them are around uh, like negotiating consent at the table really is I think what like makes that, what makes Firebrand so powerful to me. And I think it was the only time that we did, I forget what the actual name of like the the game is within Firebrands um, that's like, But it's basically about, like, stealing a moment alone with someone. And it's the game that, like, if you're playing this as mech pilots and you wanted to have, like, kind of a sex scene or, like, a romantic, like, love scene that you would use. And we hadn't really done it because that wasn't our, like, the vibe of our game. And yet we used it for the scene of Tio transferring Ava's body from the spider robot to the other robot. Because I was like, this is... Even though... I don't want the scene that we're having to be like explicitly a a sexual scene. There is still this like great degree of intimacy that is happening between you and this other character that is around like bodies and where having questions like, can I like touch your chassis and open it to remove this being a core part of like what the tension of that scene was and what was interesting about that scene. And to be like, you know, then having the player be able to have Ava do things that are like not yet like or like, yes, you can't open my chassis if you can reassure me about this or whatever. Um, and it was a way that we could like play through that that interaction in a way that hit on something about bodies that I think was at the core of even why she was interested in having her character be like, I want to move from this current body I have into a body that that is like in appearance and form more human. And 
part of why that worked so well and why like that was a powerful scene for me to be able to do with you know that player was because so much of it was about like the actual constant negotiations that happen in these kinds of intimate relationships even if what we were doing was this like process of transferring consciousnesses that again like when we talked about this with Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, it was specifically in the context of, and then like sexual abuse that can happen within the medical context to trans people was what mm-hmm. I was talking about. Um, and so like this, like intimacy with bodies can often like quickly venture into it. Um, I say all of this to be like, there is something here about like, I want you to be able to touch this piece of me that is incredibly delicate and sensitive to the oils and like that this is like this somewhat transgressive like sexual act that I I guess want you the player character to do to, to me that could be incredibly interesting but there are significant issues with the way that it's handled here one is that like basically the I guess gives you this big spiel of like this is what I want you to do and then you have two options which are nod silently or hold her hand gently And either way, there's a slight difference in the dialogue at the very beginning. So I'm going to read this one. I think the audio I'm going to pull is from the hold her hand gently. But if you do nod nod silently, then she'll say, thank you very much. I'm overflowing with joy. Please come closer. And then it goes right into the, oh, um, since you're coming into direct contact with my heart, that's going to be in the audio that I'm going to play earlier. And so whichever like thing that you say here you still do it. Like you even as a player are not getting an option whether or not you're going to do this like sexualized act with this robot. And so it is no longer like in any way an interesting negotiation of that. And it becomes this like weird, like you as a player just do it regardless that feels terrible because it's like, that's not what like good sex is, (laughs) right? Like to not even have an option that meaning... Max ranking Igis means that you're going to like touch your heart with your oily finger is a like gross thing that, that they don't even give you the, an option to opt out of it and still max rank this character. That's like fucked up in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's also like not getting to what I think can be interesting here. So I mentioned earlier in this recording about progesterone making me incredibly gay. And I think about teeth all the time. <laughs> um, and Like, I'm just going to say here on the podcast, like, it's kind of become a running joke with me now of this thing of, so I enjoy biting and things around biting as, like, a a sexual thing, and there's, like, now become this kind of running joke of, like, me explaining it being, like, so teeth are bones in the body that you can touch, (laughs) and you can like literally touch someone else's bones in their body. And then you can negotiate with that person about how much they are going to hurt you with the bones that are in their body. And that is incredibly sexy to me. <laughs> I, that may not be sexy to you, Connor. I, I don't know your thoughts on this, but like for me, that negotiation of like, these are things that are like, transgressive that are again like teeth being bones in the body it being something that's like deep within someone and a a, like version that's like out 
more into the body and that you can like touch and experience and then use to like stimulate the body of someone else and that you can like negotiate like how how hard are you going to bite and like let us find that line where it is a line that is not too far but it is like edging to a level which like i i enjoyed if my lip gets split or whatever like that is like where the line is for me like i don't want to have like irrevocable uh irrevocable damage to my body and yet like i don't i enjoy it sometimes when i bleed and it is some of this is like probably going back to i have all the stuff around trauma and self-harm and things but also this thing of like this extreme amount of vulnerability that you can have with someone and also specifically the process of negotiation the process of like with another person being incredibly vulnerable and then finding out like where is that line with things that would otherwise be like painful to have it be like a desirable level of pain is a like that is what this scene could go to if it actually did it right (laughs) and then it would be like incredible and i'd be like this is the most fucking amazing thing (laughs) uh but instead like they kind of just force you into like and then you touch your heart and like she talks about how she's gonna like turn off her arms and legs which again is not coming into like any kind of actual interesting kink play like negotiation around like restraining it's just a thing that the game does like it's like gesturing at these things that are actually close to like what is interesting sexual activity for me and the other is kind of just forcing you into it in a way that then just like feels gross and bad to me the other thing that's like really gross and bad here is pretty much all of igus's like dialogue for the female route is identical to the male route. There's like small changes where I think in the original male one, it's like, Oh, I'm not, I know I'm not like a real girl, like Mitsuru and like Yukari. And yet I still love you. And here it's like, Oh, like you're not a a boy, you're a girl. And yet like, still I have these feelings for you. And so they're like slightly moving it in this way that might touch more on like lesbian feelings that you might have about like, here's, how I'm feeling about you and like the shame I have or whatever. And yet like to me, it, it still doesn't feel like it's actually really engaging with any of like any, like meaningfully with any sort of queerness. It's kind of just taking what was originally a straight like relationship option that existed in the male route and then just transposing it onto you're now a female character. But also we as the game makers are still perhaps in some way, presuming that this is like the male player who's going to be choosing this option instead of dating Akihiko or like Shinjiro or whoever. So it also like has that like weird stench to it too of like them of it being lesbianism that is like portrayed for the male gaze and not like actually in any way engaging with queerness and like the actual important themes of queerness. And I think the biggest part where this stands out is like saying this thing about leaving an indelible proof of this body of like your genetic material, like grossly seems to be gesturing towards like insemination and they're still doing it with this female route. And yet like that also feels weird and sits weird and it is gross to me. So yeah, that's like, I was hoping that the, I guess love relationship would really pull this game out for me and it didn't. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> in fact, it kind of just made me not like it even more. So yeah, I like. I think my final takeaway is like we all played Persona Three when it first came out, and we were like, "Wow, I have not played dating sims ever," or like I've only played a few. And even if you've played dating sims, the way that they like blend it in with JRPGs feels so revolutionary at the time. And like Persona 4 is better. I'm sorry. Like I know that there are issues around how it does queerness. It's still in some way engaging with queerness in a way that like I can actually, I, I feel like I, like if I was talking to people who worked on Persona 4 and could speak in Japanese to them or whatever, I could actually like have a conversation with them about like, what are you doing and how, like, how are you handling this? And like, how can I push you towards realizing that the ways that you pulled back in the end were harmful? Because I still felt like that game wanted to engage with like what it means to be queer in, uh, in Japanese society and how that actually ties into anime tropes of like, revolution or whatever even if they then like flubbed a lot of stuff throughout it i still feel like i can engage with it in a more meaningful way where it's not just me like looking at this i guess romance and just being like this isn't good this just actually fucking sucks like i yeah i don't know and like this is the most in persona 3 that i feel like it can even push at anything that's like actually interesting because the stuff with chidori just like completely fuck off i like i hate it so much um so yeah if you really loved persona 3 and you haven't played it in a while either take my word for it that it's not as good as you remember or like do the task of trying to replay it and seeing if you can stick with it is i guess my advice because i think we all have a rosy view on it just because of how far in the past it was at this point and it's so long ago that like there hasn't been discourse around Persona 3 and its handling of queerness and the way that there has been around Persona 4 and Persona 5. And so people assume, oh, it must have been good then or like must not have at least touched on it in a way that was bad. And like there was that lesbian relationship and no one ever talks about how that was a bad one. So like it must have been good then. And I think it's actually just distance and, and a rosy view and people not actually going back and engaging with it in a meaningful way where we can actually see that, like, I think this is actually one of the worst handlings of queerness and other topics in the series that I think actually later games did actually get better at. And I'm actually more hopeful about the future of Persona now as someone who, when I played Persona 5, was feeling kind of down on it because I felt like it wasn't doing what I thought Persona 4 was trying to do i'm actually a little bit more hopeful because i feel like there actually has been some progress here so anyway let's talk about some queerness with shaking the habitual (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if you have any actual thoughts but like i know you haven't played persona games so yeah i think um i mean thought my first thought is i i truly wish that i found teeth erotic in the same way that you do because (laughs) i because i don't but like it it sounds great. Yeah. Um, um, that you're you're, you're going to have to listen great. to, you're going to have to listen to a lot more Prince and you'll, then you'll be able to get there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Prince has a song about that. Um, about, yeah. The yeah. inherent erotic nature of teeth. Let um, me, I'm going to quick read two lines from a Charles Theonia poem. Just, uh, I love these lines a lot. 
hung over lip split from their teeth so that every further kiss hurts sweetly. Um, one of my favorite poems. So the collection is, um, which one is the bridge? Charles Theonia. Highly recommend it. One of my favorite poetry books. Anyway, shaking the habitual. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, again, uh, very hard to follow. So yeah, recently, um, I've been having a really, uh, just a lot of fun re-listening to The Knife's Shaking the Habitual. Um, if you're not familiar, um, The Knife is a Swedish um, electronic group. They, uh, probably their most popular album is um, this album called Silent Shout. They came out in 2006, and uh, I think a lot of people still listen to Silent Shout. It was probably their most commercially successful album. I don't have like the the numbers or whatever, but I feel like most people who are like into music or any type of like strange music know the knife based on Silent Shout. Um, it was yeah. like obviously really critically successful and then like commercially successful uh, as well. Um, it is. I, I'm about to say this say with the knowledge that I also think this is true about Shaking the Habitual, but that when I say it about Shaking the Habitual, it's probably a slightly more controversial statement, but that Silent Shout is like deeply danceable. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. But absolutely. I, I also think Shaking the Habitual is, but in a um Yeah, I I feel like there are some people who would disagree with me on that, even though I very firmly believe Shaking the Habitual is also deeply danceable. Yeah. But but Silent Shout is more obviously more easily danceable. It's it's more explicitly like pop um, and anchored in that and, and more just like accessible, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, back when, when Shaking the Habitual came out back in 2013, I, I was engaging with it like pretty much right away because I was writing for a music site at the time and please like, please don't look up any like music criticism that I've written um, because it's all horrible i disown it any reviews that i wrote for that website um are i i i can't read them now because it's it's so embarrassing but the website itself is good they're really good people it's called treble zine um please support them if you like uh reading album reviews and stuff they're great people but just don't read my stuff um anyway we all uh so i was like part of the music reviewing community at the time that this happened and Shaking the Habitual is the kind of album that like comes out and everyone is just like puts it in their top five. Like, oh yeah, like best hundred albums of 2013. And then they like, you know, put it in their top five and then they never listen to it again. Because it's so like difficult and you know, whatever experimental or abrasive. There's always albums like that every year. You know what I mean? Where people are like, oh yeah, that's one of the best albums of the year, but I'm never going to listen yeah. to it again. The thing that really struck me about it at the time, and now looking back, really makes me happy, is uh, the context surrounding this album and what The Knife did. So I think I, I, think I say in, our 08th episode, in one of our 08th episodes... 
I like to talk about like, I try to be very generous when it comes to filmic media um, and video games as well. Like I always try to give the most generous reading kind of like you were doing briefly for Persona uh, 3 before you destroyed it. Um, I wanted so badly to like go back to Persona 3 and find that I loved it and I didn't. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah. Well, and you know, we do generous readings on Ghost Divers, I think, you know. We try to find the good in things. Some might say our reading of Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex was generous. <laughs> it, it, yeah, maybe in some ways. Well, you know, if you disagree, give us an email. Um, but for some weird reason, I really, I don't have that impulse for music. And I'm actually like, I'm like the opposite, where I'm really mercilessly crit- like critical. And to the extent that like, if I talk about music too long on this podcast, I'm going to get us in trouble. Um, Cause I, I just have some like opinions that again, are totally subjective and biased, but I have like my reactions to music is often not that generous, but shaking the habitual I love. The thing about this album is uh, the knife in 2006 and the years following, like had this huge breakout success with silent shout and you know, they're all ready to like, you know, they've gotten their pitchfork like approval and they're on all the indie kids playlists and everyone is like hotly anticipating their next album, which promises to be like more of this kind of weird, but still catchy, um, like super dancey, you know, uh, like synth, synth pop, uh, Swedish synth pop stuff. So what do they do? They wait seven years to release their next album and with their next album uh instead of like leaning into you know like oh yeah we've broke through commercially so let's like capitalize on this and make an album that is like you know again catering or like recognizing uh this commercial breakthrough so we can have our like taylor swift single collaboration or whatever or like you know your top like charting artist instead they take this like hard left turn and that that is a pun um a hard left turn into like abrasive industrial like long form experimental pieces there's a song that's like 19 minutes (laughs) on the in the middle of this album um, that, like, I know you say that it's danceable, and I, I agree to an extent, but there's a song that's, like, 19 minutes that is not at all danceable. And, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, listen, I'm I'm in the teeth. What, what constitutes dancing <laughs> is a broad thing for me. Right, right, yes. Um, yeah, it's like, yeah. Dancing can, can also just be, like, biting your lip open while industrial beats are blaring in the background. (laughs) Um, But uh, so in addition to like doing this, which I will say is, is so enjoyable for me because I'm a big fan of metal music and which I, I will probably never talk about on this podcast, but so much of what metal music is about, it is resisting being like, consumed by the mainstream or reconciled to like mainstream music in any way. 
And I know Karen Dreyer is aware of metal music because she gestures towards it, not only on Shaking the Habitual, but also on her solo album, where the cover art is like pretty explicitly referencing this. But as someone who likes metal, seeing an artist like just completely like blow off uh, this commercial breakthrough that probably that kind of happened by accident um, and veer hard into like really abrasive, experimental, like long form, progressive, like techno is, is just chef's kiss, like so excellent for me. Um, The other uh, thing and why it's really relevant is uh, in addition to like veering musically, Shaking the Habitual is like, also an extreme left album politically um, engage and engages with like a lot of the things that we've been talking about um, on this episode engages explicitly with like queer theory engages with like Marxism uh, in ways that yeah, are like, like the title comes from Foucault. <laughs> yeah. The title comes from Foucault. There is a moment on full of fire which i think is the one the song that they released as their single which is kind of funny because it's like extremely uh abrasive and nine minutes long and not a single but there's a moment where they like i can't remember the artist that is being referenced but it's that that lyric about like let's talk about sex baby let's talk about you and me and they they say let's talk about gender baby let's talk about you and me so they're like uh, polemically engaging with popular music that's come before um, and with society, uh, like some of these dominant social forms. Um, they put out a bunch of art as well that's all like this like brightly colored, abrasive, hot, hot purple, hot pink, like art pieces with almost like uh, Holzer-esque like captions, like end extreme wealth and stuff. And, uh, yeah, so, um, I, I think at the time people weren't really, you know, they appreciated like some of these things at arm's length, the music and like the lyrical content and the themes and stuff. Um, but revisiting it now in 2021, when radical left politics have become, or I would say more like emergent. Um, than they were probably back in 2013 is it feels really topical. Uh, it's really fun. It, it makes me feel profound respect for the knife, uh, beyond like what I had felt already, um, because of how ahead of their time they were. And really like, I think some artists are now beginning to like some, you know, more well-known artists are beginning to start to move towards this kind of thing or just like some of the things that are done on this album but not nearly to like the same extent or with the same like gusto and ambition that is done on shaking habitual so yeah uh that's my casual like non-heavy uh non-anime thing shaking the habitual it's a great album it uh, is seen as inaccessible, but it's actually really fun. If you haven't, you should listen to it uh, and just enjoy the, uh, you know, 
and enjoy the the poppiness and the the danceability. It also has uh, there's a few moments where Karen like sings like Kate Bush on "Without You, My Life Would Be Boring" is is a good example. Uh, she like completely mimics the Kate Bush voice, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. So anyway, you know, that's that's my little uh, non-anime thing. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned this before, but this I feel like was also a big like. I think it was specifically around Plunge coming out. You know, Karen's like solo album is Fever Ray, and I think we were both kind of like talking about it and then being like, so what's your favorite, like the knife album and us both being like, Oh, shaking the habitual and being like, yeah, all right. All right. (laughs) You're, you're cool. (laughs) Yeah. I see you. (laughs) Yeah. That's, I, I also think like there, there's definitely this like streak of like queer theory that, Again, like really shaking the habituals where you first see it, and then it shows up in like more fever ray stuff sense because yeah, a, a lot in plunge. Yeah, plunge, plunge in like particular, very... like yeah, it it plunges into it, I guess. Um, oh yeah, and like I love, I love plunge puns. a lot because of how much it um like it is really engaging with that stuff. I I think musically, I still like shaking the habitual more but like plunge is also very near and dear to my heart um yeah plunge moves back into like well that's not i don't want to say moves back like i don't want to apply regression but she just like she moves into back into um i i think some more accessible forms yeah like songwriting i mean like what the longest song on that album is still under six minutes i think yeah um which i think might be plunge and like a lot of them are around the like three or four minute mark i mean i think some of it too is also i like if we had rags on here from hot singles i bet they could really go into like a whole bunch of how this connects with a lot of like queer dance music that has come since I don't know quite as much of the history there because for a long time, I just specced purely in Icelandic music, but um, like, I wouldn't be surprised if some of shaking the habitual, like was an influence on computer music as a genre and like the kind of stuff that Sophie was doing and the way that like that filtered into hyper pop as a genre right now. Mm-hmm. And that plunge, to me feels like it is a revisiting of some of the stuff from shaking the habitual, but like contextualizing it a little bit more within the, like at that time still emerging, like here's what hyper pop is as like a genre that now exists and is, you know, typified by a hundred gex, which have we ever talked about a hundred gex? I don't know mm-hmm. if you like a hundred gex. So. I'm a big hundred gex fan. But, yeah, I'm not familiar with them. Um, you should check them out. They, like, I don't know how familiar you are with some of the hyperpop stuff. I think 100 Gex is one of the, like, the ones where you can listen to it. And it is at once both abrasive and yet also, like, deeply engaging with. And I think 
like reaching out towards pop music, but also the pop music that is kind of derided. Like there, there's a ska song called stupid horse about betting all of your money on a horse at a horse track and then losing all your money. Um, (laughs) And it is, again, it's a, it's a ska song. And yet it is also like full of the weird, pushing of like the voice and like these weird abrasive sounds that again, I'm not as familiar with like, let me contextualize the full history of this. So I don't know. It rags. If you are listening to this, like maybe you, you can send me a like tweet or something about this, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is some lineage that is going back to something like, you know, shaking the habitual because of what that was also doing in terms of like pushing and like playing with sounds in this abrasive way that to me also like with my specking and Icelandic music, I can still also see a lineage with like stuff that Björk was doing and like CROs and things. And a lot of what was happening in the Icelandic music scene and a, a taking of some of that stuff and pushing it more towards the abrasion that um, I think a lot of like the, again, scare quotes, because a lot of people reject this label, but like the crew generation was called cute because it was a lot of like, let us play with the form of punk and the sounds of punk and the like pushing past what is considered good music or what is considered like the correct way to create music. And yet it was pushing towards like, how do we create, how do we create, create something that sounds beautiful out of weird harmonies or like out of weird sounds that are supposed to be ugly? And how do we like show what is beautiful about ugliness? And I think that's a lot of what Kroot was about. And I think stuff like shaking the habitual, like pushes more into the like, the let us alienate people with this yeah um that i still think like to return to sophie again because like sophie's on my mind today Mm. sophie is being abrasive while at the same time i think pushing at trying to achieve some sort of like beauty with that even as they are like sometimes weird like screeching you know to like you know, alienating songs to a lot of people. I think the, like, the the intent and what I, like, read into it is this, like, attempt at, like, brilliance, not in, like, the intellectual sense, but in the, like... Shining. Shining and, like, bright and just um, so stunning and, like, beautiful and, like, awesome, almost in the, like, the biblical sense, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so. I want to say, like... I I know I said, like, you know, other artists maybe haven't, like, m- matched this. I, I definitely think there are other artists, like, some that I'm sure I don't even know, um, but Sophie included, um, that, like, have have continued on, like, with, with a lot of these same, not only, like, musical concepts, but also, like, themes that, that you really point out. And... I would also say, like, the history, there's a whole thing on, like, that I just want to acknowledge with, like, the history of electronic music and the history of dance music is, like, 
very uh is is almost defined by like like queer or like gay or trans artists going back to like artists like coil or like throbbing gristle and even before so i don't want to say that the knife has like invented any of this but like for an act for like an artist of their stature in the position that they're in to make that move in their career and put out a piece like this is really amazing to me. I'm about to send you something on discord. Pull this open and I will do a like three, two, one countdown and we'll hit play. I want to get your reaction live. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good. I love it. Let me know when you're ready. I, I, I think I'm ready on the me. Okay. Oh, here it is. Okay. And then we'll, we'll hit the, like, play on the YouTube video. Okay. Let me know when to hit play. Okay. We'll do the... It'll be, like, three, two, one, and then we do play. Not, like, play on one, but, you know, the beat after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Three, two, one. So what are, what are your thoughts so far? It's it's very ska. <laughs> I love it. Uh, get ready. <laughs> I yeah, this is. I mean, I love a lot of 100 Gex, but like this is the first 100 Gex song I heard. And you know, so Laura Less, who's one of the two members of this duo is a trans woman also like a couple days ago a remix album of my favorite album of 2020 uh, my data by katie day came out which has a remix by laura less on it so like yeah definitely this is what a lot of queer musicians are doing right now is like in this direction so is this a cover or is this like an original song that's just like influenced by is this This a cover this is an original song okay because it's, it's so convincingly ska. It's really great. Um, I um, think my favorite 100 Gex song is Hand Crushed by a Mallet, which is one of the most like abrasive ones on their, their album. I highly recommend that as well. It, this one's a little bit more like, oh, this is a ska song and it's doing some weird things, but like, it's also like clearly ska. Whereas Hand Crushed by a Mallet just has parts where like it gets like very uh noisy and abrasive yeah i like in my work friends we do playlists and i always apologize when i put 100 gex on because like only one or two other people in the group like actually like 100 gex you have nothing (laughs) Um, to apologize for (laughs) but um yeah there's like I, I was trying to explain it to someone once of being like, I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, you should listen to one of your Gex. There's like a ska song or whatever. Like, here's all the influences of these songs that you probably liked when you were like in high school. And for me, I was listening to like Melt Banana in high school. And so I'm oh, like, yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a like noise punk band that is using ska as material <laughs> to like create noise punk. <laughs> so... That's that's my read on 100 Gex. Yeah, I love it. 
I'm gonna have to. Uh, yeah, I'm Check gonna have to burn. I'm gonna have to burn a 100 gig CD because that's I actually still do that. I burn CDs and listen to them <laughs> in my car. Anyway, shall we wrap up with Ian's question? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, uh, the second part here of Ian's email. They say everybody in I know in uh, in grad school or a PhD program hates it, but the career I'm most fervently eyeballing requires a master's degree at minimum. So depending on where I end up living in the next year, it might end up happening. Please, what are some hot tips for making it out alive and healthy? Please. <laughs> um, do you have any starting thoughts here? Um, yeah, I was thinking about this question because. This question, it really hurt my heart because you, and it, well, we've talked about our like <laughs> grad school experience here. Yeah. Um, and I think the place that we went to grad school is like in, in some ways a uniquely devastating like culture academically. Yeah. I was thinking um, about it of the like one saving grace of it was that it was literally a one year program. Yeah. And so like it was so devastating and terrible and yet at least I was done with it in a year. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like the one the one nice thing I can say about it is I got it done in a year. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but I can only speak from this from this experience. And also I don't know like Ian what what type of program, what type of field you would be going into and I think that that probably matters too. But from like the humanities side so one thing that happens in grad school, especially like in our field, but probably elsewhere too, a lot of people like experience some form of like imposter syndrome, which is something that I would just be prepared for, not yeah. only like in yourself, but also like potentially in others, because it, it makes people act in certain ways. Like I know for me, there was a, a level of like competitiveness that really like got to me. Like I felt like I really internalized this need to like perform at a certain level. Um, and I felt like grad school was all about like, it eventually became all about like performance and like exceeding and, you know, having all of this knowledge, like, already, and, you know, in, in this competitive way, that also distorted some of the, like, discourse that you would just be having with people, like, in your classes and, you know, around the program. A lot of, like, posturing and stuff, which which kind of creates, like, a cyclical problem. So, you know, I would just say, like, it's once you're done, like it doesn't matter what grade you got or like necessarily what your professors like thought of you. The most important thing is just like getting through and also like do your best to create, give yourself the time that you need. Like create, if the work gets really heavy, um, make a plan that builds in like the time that you need for like self-care. And in my experience, I didn't figure that out until really late. 
But once I was like, oh, I have this crushing amount of work, but I know that if I can make a plan where it's like, I work, I'm going to work for six hours today and I'm going to work for three hours and then I'm going to like take a break for an hour and then I'm going to work for another three hours. Then during that hour break that I had scheduled for myself, it made it easy to be like, I, I can relax for an hour because I know I have like this time and I don't, I, I'm able to like set down this burden of like, oh, you have to, you should be working right now or, you know, you have all this shit to do. It made it easy for me to be like, yes, I know. And like, I have a plan for that. So, and part of the, part of that plan is me taking a break right now. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that like was really important for me to figure out. And I figured out way too late uh, of having to deal with like a really intense workload. If you can do that, that helped me at least. And I might have more thoughts, but I'll let you give a crack at it. Yeah. I mean, to like kind of add on to that too as well. Like, I don't know how much you, you, both Connor and Ian, like, follow a lot of stuff that's going on in game spaces, but there's a lot of talk about crunch. And, like, no going in to grad school that it is going to be a crunch-like environment where you are going to be, like, yeah doing tons and tons of work and, like, go in with that knowledge so that you can build ways to still, like you said, like, buy time for yourself and find time for yourself to just like actually get away from it. You know, I, I forget when I said this about art school, like going to art school is a thing where you are like, what you're working on is a thing that you can always continue to work on and try and make better. Like you, you don't get to the end of that work. And I feel like a lot of grad school stuff can be that as well. Like writing a thesis is a thing where you, you could always do more work and just like, know sometimes like, if it's good enough, like I put in so much work into my thesis and I still wish I could rewrite it. So like the finishing it is actually more important than having it perfect yes. and just like, let yourself finish it. Like if you get to a spot where you're like, I think I can call this finished, just be okay with that. Even if it's not like exactly what you wanted it to be like being able to have that where you say like, I think I'm just done. will will help you a lot in being able to like not destroy yourself in the process, I guess. I think the other, like one big thing is I was just have the thing of like, be absolutely positive that you want to do this. Um, I wish I had done that before I went to grad school and like, not just that you want to do this, but also look into like, so like the humanities is such a thing where the further up you go into the humanities, the less and less like, fewer people will get to do a PhD than have a master's degree. And then fewer people who have a PhD will be able to actually teach. And like, yes, like far fewer. Yeah. And so like, sometimes I think it can also just look, be worthwhile, like looking into, okay, what is this career that I want to go into? If it like requires this work, like what's the actual chances that I will then get the work, like get a job in the field after I do this. 
and like actually look up those statistics because I didn't and I wish I would have. <laughs> Although also by the time I got to the end of that, I was like, I actually don't want to be in academia anymore. Um, yeah. So maybe some of it is self-selecting. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I but, definitely think that our program has, has that function. Has like, that's yeah. a hidden function of it. Um, I, I think the other thing is like, I just thinking about ways that I got through like university of Chicago one is that I was already married to Emily and like she just took on more stuff around the house in a way that helped me focus on work. And that is a thing that I know, like I was lucky to have. And it is also a thing that like, I mean, in general, we, we joke in general that like I am the girl in the relationship and that she is the guy in the relationship and that it's like she comes home from work and is like where's my dinner woman (laughs) (laughs) and we like joke about this because we're we're queer and we're like joking around heteronormative relationship stuff but like in the overarch like overarching span of our marriage i have far more often been the one who's doing a lot of the tasks around the house like cooking and things but like she took on a ton of that stuff when I was in grad school, just so I could focus. And I know that that helped me a lot. And I don't know how to like translate that into advice for someone else going into grad school. But, um, I just speaking from experience, that was something that find a spouse. (laughs) Um, (laughs) just like, or like find. I think the bigger thing I can say is just like find people who can support you and let them support Mm -hmm. you and let them help you. And some part of this is also find someone else in the department who is like sick of the bullshit of the program in the exact same way that you are, even if it's just one person. Cause I had that and it helped a lot to just like, you know, take my break from writing to then like sit in my apartment and watch red line, but actually focus on it with like my one friend who also was like, this is so fucked and just like talk about how fucked it was. And also about how red line is the perfect representation of the idea of jouissance from Lacan. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, and also talk about later. Yeah. We also talked uh, at length about the peaches song, which I'm totally drawing a blank on the name of the song, but the, the lyrics of being sucking on my titties, like you wanted me. <laughs> Uh, we talked about that oh, song a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I know that song actually. Yeah, I don't so know anyway, the name of it though, so that's not really helpful. And like, I don't talk to that person anymore. We like lost touch, but us just being able to like bitch about the program and like to hang out with someone who was not going to be invested in like the trying to compete with us or something. or like the weird ways that those happen was like incredibly beneficial for me as well to just be like, I have like my one ally here where like, we're just trying to see it through and we're just like, we've got each other's backs and that's like, that helped tremendously as well. So that kind of ties into like, again, my biggest is there are, are people who will support you and like, let them support you in whatever way they can. Um, and like, don't, don't, fight it because you have to like do it alone or whatever just let people help you um yeah and i will say like i don't want this to all be just like doom and gloom grad school can be it can be an amazing experience 
there's a lot of things about my time at U Chicago. Like we're we're front loading all of this like bad stuff, and like it certainly was really hard in all of these ways. Um, but it, I don't want to just be like unreasonably like discouraging because there are good things about it and good things that can come of it. Like I, I wouldn't undo it if I could go back and like choose not to to do it or not. Like I I, I would still do it, and it can be a great thing. Like. So, you know, don't think it's necessarily all, like, horrible. Um, there's a lot of good. Be open to, like, the good that can come from it. Yeah. Um, I as, I don't know if I would do it, if I would go back and do it, but... Um, I thought you were going to be like, nope, grad school is horrible, <laughs> no matter what. Yeah, I don't know if I would. And, like, I, I legitimately mean I don't know. Like, if someone actually offered it to me, I would be like, hmm, I'm going to have to, like think about this like you're telling me you have a time machine that you can only do to send me back in time to like not go to grad school and like undo this Ooh, i'm gonna like really need to think on this because there were parts about it that were just like bad and the debt was awful um honestly uh, yeah. the debt is one of the biggest things and but also i say this knowing that like the job i have now there's probably a decent chance that part of why I got it was that I went to the University of Chicago, even though it like has nothing to fucking do with what I did. It still like showed some caliber of me, quote unquote. And I mean, one thing, too, is there are some company the company I work for does like tuition reimbursement stuff. I don't like I think the struggles of trying to do grad school while working are probably awful. It, it takes a long time, but also like not having that debt. Like I have coworkers who have gone through grad school because of reimbursement and they're like this is great um that I don't have debt even though it was like it took a lot out of me to then have to like go home from work and take a class. Um yeah. so there's obviously stuff to weigh there, but like I know some fields too where it's often a field where you have a higher chance of being hired as well. There are companies that are like, Hey, we would love it if you had this grad degree. And so like, we will hire you right now and do the tuition reimbursement while you're like learning while also working for us in this level, because we would like want you to stick around and continue to work when you get the degree. So I also just bring that up. It was like, the the worst part to grad school for me was the debt and like how that affected my life for a really long time. And there are other parts, like some of the other stuff was good about it. And really it's the debt that like makes me sometimes be like, mm, why did I even do that? <laughs> mm-hmm. So like, I just want to bring that stuff up in terms of like, there were good parts to the experience of actually going through grad school, even if it was also like stressful and terrible in other ways. And like when I say things of like really look into whether you would have a good chance of getting a job here, if you had the degree and stuff, a lot of that is coming from like grad degrees cost a lot. And just like, I think especially when you are first coming out of like undergrad or when you're first looking into schools, they like, it's hard to really contextualize how much like money stuff is. Um, I don't know exactly how like young you are Ian, but like, 
I don't know. Like you, you don't fully have the, a sense of like that scale of money. I feel like I know I didn't maybe some people or just do, like but... the, the like day to day, like how it, what it's going to be like when you are done yeah. and have that debt. Yeah, what it's going to look like day-to-day paying that off and, like, just the expectations on you. Yeah. So, not to be, like, a super downer at the very end of this. There's some great parts about grad school. I no, you, you have been super downer. Yeah, I found my, my favorite genre of film, Yakuza film, because I took a class on it. So, that was good. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I watched... Neon Genesis Evangelion, really high. That was a pretty, that was a pretty good one, pretty good moment as well. Yeah, that's although a, that's I could, a choice. I could have, uh, I could have done that without grad school. No, and thinking about it. Yeah, I feel like I mean I definitely got to watch some movies that would be very hard to watch without having a professor who was like doing the subtitles himself. But there's definitely a lot of cool yakuza films that i could have watched without going to grad school yeah um, well and i'm just joking, obviously joking about the evangelion thing like <laughs> i had i had a chance to like learn from some amazing scholars who i learned a lot from and i met a lot of people and had you know some really great relationships and like conversations through which I, I also learned a lot so you know it there was a there was a lot of positive stuff about it for me um even though like it it was extremely hard as well yeah so uh i guess we can we can end here you you've just listened to us talk for four hours and i'm sure you're dying to listen to us talk some more so go check out the intro to sakagaki Cromarty high school that's also in the feed going up today uh <laughs> we're we're gonna have a lot of fun talking about uh Cromarty high um yeah we we like especially the second episode we're just like losing it sometimes it's great <laughs> yeah uh, you know so if you want to after listening to us just like go on tangents and bear our souls for four hours if you want to hear us lose it some more um yeah the, the crow high series is great for that and uh you know we we really uh we live to produce content for you all you know um, yeah so you just just crank it out hours and hours of content so you can of course find more content that's not content that we produced at the export audio network exportaud.io or patreon.com slash export audio thank you again to export audio network for hosting us i feel like we have fans that know about this because of the export audio network which is cool it's nice to record our very first question bucket and have questions and have one of them be from someone who's not like my friend (laughs) yeah so and thank you again for for writing in cyborg and ian it yeah uh, it does mean a lot um if you are listening to this and you're like dang i wish i would have written in you can write into future question bucket episodes at ghostdiverspod at gmail.com you can also follow the show on twitter at ghostdiverspod and you can follow me at foxmomnia which uh f-o-x-m-o-m-n-i-a 
I like never spell it out. I figure I should sometimes. Where can people follow uh find you, Connor? You can you can find me in my robust content stream at Rabelais, R-A-B-B-L-E-A-I-S. Yeah, a real content mill over here. Yeah, I'm just you know it's it's honestly comparable to the volume that we produce with the podcast. Yeah. Hours worth this, of tweets. You know, some of these great tweets like um let's see. You responding to me tweeting at you, why do men write novels about whales instead of going to therapy? And you said, excellent question. I hope to answer it in my <laughs> forthcoming novel. So, you know, great content like that. Um, anyway. <laughs> yeah. And then the many other tweets that I've made. I'm pretty, yeah. There's lots of them. That's definitely not the only tweet on there. Yeah. Um, it's just the like one of many, one highlight among. <laughs> we we have to stop. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Let's do the time dot is clap. Okay. Can't believe we went for four hours. <laughs> wow, I feel like Wait, when when are we clapping? What's the time? Oh, I just clap. <laughs> this is how delirious I am. Oh god. Um thirteen twenty. Okay. Um yeah, I feel like I was not the sharpest tonight but that's okay i think it was good that's good i i hope i was like endearingly confused <laughs> i love i love the cats in. it's like after midnight so i'm gonna stop recording soon and go to bed okay um did you want to do you want to like come back later to do the um content warnings and stuff Oh, um, I figure I will just, I forgot, like, that's a note from me just copy-pasting this. Um, okay. So, yeah, I think, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to listen through and take notes on, like, when there is stuff, and then I'll just record a thing that I'll throw at the very beginning that's like, hey, here's some content warnings for the episode. Um. So, yeah, I'll just okay. get that when I'm editing it. All right, sounds good. Oh, it's Ollie this time. My other cat came in. Um, yeah. All right, some good, bye. Get some... <laughs>
All right, I'll see you. Um, maybe we'll I'm, talk tomorrow. I'm sleepy. Bye. Okay, bye. I'm going to go sleepy. <laughs> Sounds good. See ya. Okay. Um, okay. Now recording. <laughs> oh, yeah. I got to get Craig in here. <laughs> um, do, do, do. All right. Craig, join general. Craig, join general. I like how, so Giark joined, Craig didn't join at all. So glad to see, glad to see Craig is still having, having trouble. Yeah. But hi, Giark, the <laughs> silent one. <laughs> so old, silent, reliable Giark. Yeah. yeah. Well, Craig is, you know, you know what you're getting with Craig at this point. Mm-hmm. So... I'm not too disappointed. I'm gonna like quick finish eating this ice cream before we actually start. The oh podcast. god! I so also totally here. did not look at your notes. Oh, there was just some some part in my brain that was just like, "Hey, you're missing something," and um. now I remember what it is. Oh, did you uh, did you share it with me? Is it in? Gundam. Oh, it's in the um, Ghost in the Shell folder. Oh, sweet. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, it's not like the order that we're recording things, but for some reason, my brain, like, this is how... This is how I, like, sort the folders as well for editing things, so... Yeah. Get sacked. Yeah, my friend Shannon was like, every time that you do uh, SAC, my brain like autocorrects it to um, SATC, Sex in the City. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I responded, um, Sex in the City standalone complex. That's <laughs> <laughs> what happens when you like decide to be permanently single. Yeah. Um, I also know nothing about Sex in the City, so I hope that was a good joke. I have not watched a lot of it. Um, it was at a time where watching that show probably would have had, like, would have been weird shame things for me. And then now I've thought about, like, oh, maybe I should watch some of it, but I've heard that there's some stuff in it that's, like, deeply queerphobic, so. Oh, really? <laughs> like, there's a... It, I know there's an entire thing about how, like, someone's dating a bi guy and then it's like, oh, you shouldn't date him because he's just going to be gay and, like, leave you or whatever. Um, oh, God. But, I mean, like, Friends is also, like, deeply transphobic at parts, so. Yeah. That, that was TV at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 90s, like, comedy sitcom shit. Yeah. Um. It's great to laugh about that stuff during the AIDS crisis, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the 90s. Like, yeah. we're, like, you know, cool and edgy. cynical and edgy, yeah. And, yeah. like, whatever. You can make fun of, like, everything is is yeah. game. Equal opportunity. Um, mocking, mm -hmm. you know. 
because everything is already on an equal level, so it's fine to mock it on an equal level. There's no like weird disparity in power differences when you're mocking one subject versus another. Um, yeah. So and maybe you know. it just so happens that like our mockery of certain certain things is particularly vicious for like coincidentally. Yeah. All right. Shall we, <laughs> shall we start? All right. Oh, we, have, we have to do a, we have to do a, cl- a clap. Come on. Okay. Well, let me. Uh... And that is. All right. What do you say? Nine fifteen thirty. Okay. 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 I I heard a delay on my end, but that usually seems to be fine. So. Okay. Um. Well. Now recording. Oh, hey, oh, Craig. Great. Better late than never. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, we've already ordered. We, like, we already ordered our food and you're just showing up. Like, this is yeah. going to be huge. Ugh. And now, like, you're trying to place an order, but we're already eating. And then you're, like, staring at our plates in this way where it's like... I'm going to ask you, do you want one of my, like, some of my fries? But also, I don't want to. And also, yeah. Like and he, you're like, I know that when you get your fries, you're not going to give me some of yours. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And by then, you'll already be full. And also, he ordered beef wellington. And they're like, it's going to take 45 minutes to prepare. And he's like, no, that's okay. I'm like, I'm Yeah, fine he's like, that. that's okay. We, we have time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Craig. Yeah. We've gone from insulting you behind your back and trying to be nice to now just being like hey craig yeah we have we have giark now so i don't even know why you came yeah yeah like your your leverage on this social situation is is declining rapidly we don't need to wait around for you anymore craig all right shall we actually start yes i'm ready i I, for some reason, thought this would be a shorter one. I don't know why. <laughs> we just, we're, we've so deeply internalized the, like, three-hour threshold. All right. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let, let's, let's try and wrap this up. Um, I was just, you know, when we were talking about doing Question Bucket, you were like, yeah, we'll just casually talk about, like, the stuff that we're doing outside of, that's, like, not anime stuff. Yeah, I like, you know. Yeah, I just like have some really it'll, casual it'll impressions. I have some really <laughs> casual impressions of like shaking the habitual now that I'm listening to it again. So yeah, here's like a really casual, hopefully concise, you, you know, discussion of shaking the habitual. I think this is gonna be our longest episode yet. <laughs> it it might be. We're at three o five, and I'm I. We're just now starting like our discussion of shaking the habitual, so it doesn't look good. But hey, it's the question bucket. So, uh, shaking the habitual. You know what? Actually, before I start, I'm going to reboot my internet because it's doing some weird dropping stuff and I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to derail. Okay. Um, so, but that wasn't loud enough. There we go. Okay. Um, give me one second. I'm going to reboot. I think, I think we'll be good if I do that. Okay.
So today, uh, Garfield is laying on the floor, which is kind of a, it's, it's gray, it's like maybe a touch towards a green, um, but it's like a brownish gray color, um, and then the wall is also kind of a, it's like a slightly pinkish brown, um, and uh, Garfield's laying with his tail, like, back, his feet, a little bit more towards the viewer than this head. Um, we've seen him in this pose before, he's got like his arm down, um, and his like nose his like nose um up in the air where you can just see his mouth um not his eyes you know his ears down on the ground um and garfield is thinking life is complicated um second panel uh visually identical and there's a speech bubble with just like a giant bold z um and then the third panel um still visually identical and Garfield is thinking, unless you do it right. Um, I'm going to run to the bathroom just because. Okay, I'm back. Can you hear me? is working. Hey, can you hear me? Alright. Alright, hello. Hey, I'm back. Um I recorded Garfield read aloud and then realized I should go to the bathroom and also grab another drink because I ran out of water and my throat is like um, feeling Classic the effects of talking for an extended period of time. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm looking forward to having you talk about shaking the habitual. Yeah. And me no to just listen. <laughs> All right. So, um, how do I start? By the way, this is going to be like a totally just bizarre off the wall episode. Just thinking <laughs> about it now, like the, we've just crossed the universe completely with the subjects we're talking about. Um, but I feel okay. like there's still like, we've had some like through lines. We've had like things that have touched between, um, I also think this is just a good, like, Hey all, this is this is us. <laughs> yeah, if that was the goal, it has been accomplished, um, at least in my eyes. But okay, um, 